Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Okay, on uh, this episode, uh, I got a long one for everyone. Uh, I'm always itching to do a long form conversation and I'm always very, very, very uh, honored and pleased when guests are willing to sit with me for a long time and talk about really important things. Uh, today, I have uh, Celine Kassem. Celine uh, is a activist and she is uh, director of media at the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Um, she has been part of the Syrian uh, Noble Revolution since she was a child. Uh, she has a bachelor's in political science and continues to work and advocating for uh, Syrians all around the world. And she is uh, soon to begin her master's in intercultural communication in Qatar. And um, she is, uh, she's quite young. She's in her 20s. And she has a, a whole wide range of, of uh, interesting dynamics, which is what was kind of appealing for me to, to talk to her. Of course, her being young is, is very interesting. I, I think it's uh, fascinating how I'll talk to many people that are much older and they're you know, researchers and scientists and you know, writers and things. And so I also... Um, really believe in, in the, the next generation and, and engaging with them and, and, and working with them, I think is, you know, of supreme importance. And so she's doing fantastic work. And so I wanted to talk with her about her, her work as she does. She's, she's quite brilliant and she's, you know, you know, wise beyond her years. So I was, I was very, very, um, happy to have a long conversation with her. Uh, as we talk about in the conversation, she has in her own personal life, whole variety of, of uh, ethnicities and uh, affiliations. So she's Syrian. Uh, she's also uh, Circassian. She's also Canadian and some Armenian. So she has a whole uh, kind of mix there, which I think is super helpful in trying to engage, as she mentions in the conversation, with the so-called West and then out in, in the so-called East. And so really trying to use her own experience to try and uh, make really, really important connections for really important issues. So I'd say the first half of the conversation, um, we talk about basically her life, which I think, you know, again, uh, she's in, in, in a very short amount of time, just a, a, a fascinating uh, story, uh, really inspiring. And so I wanted to talk about her life. Uh, and she was very gracious to to talk about, you know, her, her life and personal life, things like that. But also extracting from that various themes that I think we can find in all of our humanity. You know, she mentions that, obviously, I'm a big believer in that as well. So we do talk about themes of, of um, home and culture and place and, and really, really big uh, themes like that, which, which, which was great because it makes you know, the personal and the abstract kind of come together. So we first start by talking about how uh, she became involved in activism and, and political work in Syria. Um, we talk about a little bit how uh, Gen Z, current generation, how they used uh, digital media and then the tools there to spread awareness about issues. We talk about the places that she's lived and this concept of, of home. What is, what is home? What does that mean? It means something different for people and, and why. We talk about her various ethnic and cultural identities. We talk about her being uh, Circassian. A lot of people are unaware of uh, Circassians and that ethnic group. And so she uh, explains a, a bit about uh, who they are in that people group. We talk about uh, Syria and the various ethnic groups that live in Syria. I think there's um, 
something that a lot of people don't understand from many places in the world. When you have countries that are uh, old, they've been around for millennia in some ways. Um, when somebody says that you're, you know, in this example, Syrian, it, it, there's usually various ethnic groups that live there. And you can find this in other countries as well. Um, and so many people will make this. Some people will just say, you know, Syrian, or some people may say, you know, they're Syrian, Circassian, or things like that. And so um, it's interesting to kind of have a more uh, well-rounded understanding of, of of places and how complex and how there's different people groups in, in even very small countries. Um, and then I guess the second half of the conversation, we talk about Syria. Uh, we talk about uh, the Syrian conflict, which has been going on for at least 12 years uh, with the Assad re- regime. We talk about some of the facts of it. We talk about what's going on to try and uh, you know, kind of stop this from continuing. There's a lot of efforts and work. We talk about some of the stuff more currently that's happened. So we, we, we spend a good uh, bit of the second half of the conversation about that. So we talk about the history of the Syrian conflict and the Arab Spring. Uh, we talk about how it escalated and how there were some potential ways for peace, what that looks like now. We talk about the more recent Assad anti-normalization bill, which is very important. We talk about refugees and this idea of, you know, refugees in general, but if, of course from Syria. We talk about acculturation, assimilation, things like that. Um, when we recorded this, it was a couple of days after the recent Turkish election, and that's where Celine is currently. She's in, in Turkey, and her perspective on the Turkish election. And we talk about activism. We talk about activism in the 21st century, tangible ways to do that. Um, why it's still important, why it's why it's still needed, uh, and many other topics. Um, it was this conversation was uh, three hours, um, uh, I think exactly three hours, and you know it, it felt in some ways really quick. Um, you know, I again as I said, you know, I I was very you know honored and and pleased and grateful that she shared so much of her personal story in her life. She is, you know, you know, wise and mature beyond her her youth, and she's doing such fantastic work. Uh, big inspiration for me, and and hopefully for other people that we have young people really, uh, not just, you know, talking about you know campaigns or the, the things they need to do, but actually doing it and and and, and kind of walking the the talk. And she certainly does that. Um, she's 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 quite lovely. She's very 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 kind. Big big heart. You know, wonderful soul. And um, she was she was just really uh, a big pleasure to, to talk with and and really talk about hard issues. I mean, we're talking about you know serious serious you know trauma for folks in in, in Syria and the region, and and uh, she's able to really kind of just navigate through that and and stay focused. And so that's uh, that's essential. We need we need more folks like her. And so it was uh, just a joy all around having this conversation. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation and all past conversations and upcoming ones at uh, my uh, Substack, convergingdialogues.substack.com. Get over there, subscribe, follow, engage, uh, comment. I'm also on YouTube. You can subscribe there. Uh, you can share and, and with, your, with your friends and family and all that and tell folks about the, the podcast if you, if you like it. And again, uh, I welcome uh, engagement as well on all those forums and um, make sure you also support Celine, support her work at the Syrian emergency task force. It's still going on there, obviously with the conflict, the recent earthquake and many, many other things. 
So support there. And um, now I bring him, Celine Cassini. I'm here with Celine Cassini. Celine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to, uh, to talking with you. Thank you so much. I'm super, super glad to be on. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I've had uh, come across some of your work. Uh, I don't quite remember when. Um, maybe maybe it was a couple months ago. I don't remember. I, I tend to try and uh, follow different uh, folks in different spaces. So I know you have a pretty good online presence. You do a lot of uh, really, really good work. So before we get into all the topics we have here, uh, why don't you tell listeners uh, a little bit about who you are, uh, organizations you work for, the type of work you're doing now, uh, and all the particulars. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about maybe more of your biographical uh, sketch in a minute, but just kind of give the the intro of, of what you're doing and, and kind of where you're from. Intro of everything. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Salim Qasim, and I am a Syrian-Canadian, Circassian, part Armenian. I have a lot that goes into who I am. Um, I've lived all around the world. And currently, I am working as the media director of the Syrian Emergency Task Force. So that involves a lot of different aspects. Um, Our organization is uh, mostly, though, uh, advocacy, policy, and um, accountability. Uh, So focused on these things, along with some humanitarian work that we do. But when it comes to percentage-wise, it's more to the advocacy and policy side than it is humanitarian. Um, But then certain things happen for us to be forced into humanitarian work, like the earthquake that just recently happened. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm 23 years old. I graduated last year and I'm going into my master's in August. So I took a break here, did a lot of work Mm. and now going in to do my master's. Very nice. Very nice. So so you were what what is the master's in? Can Can I ask that? So it's intercultural communications. I did political science as my undergrad, and I kind of wanted to go into this field because I think that I would be good at it because of kind of my my life nature and how things panned out for me. I I know how both sides of the world think and 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 basically work. Um, I grew up half in the West, half in in the East, I guess you could say. So, so I have both aspects in me, even myself, my personality is a little bit of everything all at once. So when it comes to the work that I do, I think it's important to have, to, to, to have people that can speak for, for both sides and to make um, both sides understand what you're working on and what you're doing. And when it comes to the Syrian crisis, it's important to have the Western input and the Western um, attention to come to that because obviously decision making making is currently in the hands of the West when it comes to all of that. Um, so yeah, I think going into that, I think I, it would be a good fit for me and, and what I want to do. And I'm doing it in Qatar, which mm. is, which is interesting. I got a scholarship um, and it's, it's exciting. I mean, I grew up in Saudi, so I'm used to it. And, and obviously I'm fluent in both languages, Arabic and English. So I'm super, super excited, but it's going to be my first time living alone. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a new change. It's something different. So I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure will be challenges, of course, but a lot of wonderful opportunities as well. So that's exciting. It's always nice to see people 
uh, continuing education. Um, so I guess the, the the one question I have here before all the other uh, stuff we get into is what is it? Um, so you know, <clears throat> getting a, a four year degree in political science. Um, why? Why did you? Why did you want to do that? Why did you want to do political science? And and I guess more. We'll start kind of with the, I guess, the easier thing vocationally. So in terms of like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up and what are the things you want to do as an adult or you grow older as an adult? Um, you know, why did you decide or, or did you fall into it or whatever for the, the bachelor's in poli sci and then currently the master's in to do a master's and then in, in the in the in the major that you're doing it in? I guess, what do you see for yourself uh, at this stage of your life? What's the kind of... Uh, the kind of arc that you're trying to, or the trend lines you're trying to go towards that all of those things help to do which goal or which aim, I guess, for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the reason that I went into political science for my undergrad, I mean, um, I'm Syrian. So when, when everything started happening in Syria and we can get into what exactly it was later on, but I was only 11 years old. So in 2011, I was only 11 years old. And when it started, um, my father was very, very, very into everything. I mean, we lived in Saudi at the time, but we would, he would take me to protests. He would take me to, to fundraising events, um, to auctions, because we were raising money for, to bring down to Syria, humanitarian aid, et cetera. So as a child, and I was still a child back then, 11 years old, I was, I was very, very amazed by what he was doing and, and by seeing all of this pan out, whether that was through news, whether that was through all the events that we were going to and, and helping out with. Um, so I think it was always in the back of my head that I'm very, very passionate about that and about this and, and everything that my people are going through and how unjust it is and how just it's very, very upsetting to see at a young age um, to see your people on the news getting killed, getting tortured, getting abused by 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 this by this regime, and and seeing the world kind of just overlook it um, to a certain degree. So I think that by the time, and I mean, I left, um, I moved to the U.S. when I was seven, seventh grade, so around fourteen years old, um, and then my life there was was different than what it was in Saudi. One hundred percent, very difficult to, not difficult but just different to kind of acclimate to um and kind of get into like how people are very different don't know what's going on in the world in the u.s i lived in new jersey um so, and that was at the time where like isis was on the high and and that's all that people knew about that region and i'm like i literally hate them way more than you do i mean they're doing this in my country so mm-hmm. um so yeah, and this was this was during high school, and then I moved to Canada when I was um, halfway through high school, so grade eleven or junior year, as you guys call it. Um, and in Canada, it was it was also that I was taking some classes to do with with uh, I guess human rights and and law and that kind of thing. So also. I kept doing all my activism. We kept going to protests in, in, in New York and then in Canada and Toronto. We were standing up for what was going on, but it was, it was always just us, like, you know, the Syrians that would, that would be talking about this and, and, and bringing awareness to this. Um, and then when it came around to applying for schools and that, 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, everyone kind of knew exactly what they wanted to do, um, whatever that was. But then for me, I kind of, I was looking at stuff and then I stumbled across this major that I didn't even know about beforehand. For some reason, I didn't know about it. And then I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to do. This is what I've kind of been doing. And I, this is the perfect thing to, to do for school and to learn more about like the, the academic side of it, I guess. Um, yeah. So then I applied, I got into Ontario tech university in Ontario, um, where I lived and it was a, it was a beautiful experience. I mean, the major wasn't, we were only like 30, 40 kids in the, in the major. So it was very like tight knit. Everyone kind of knew each other. The professors were so close with us. We got to, we got to get into really deep topics with them and everyone kind of knew me as like the Syria girl in my major. So whenever, whatever the topic would be about in school, I would just be bringing up Syria, like every single class. So people just knew me as that Celine, the Syria girl. Um, and you can ask all my professors, like that's the one thing that comes to mind when it comes to me. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I did that. So as a child, I I saw it pan out and I I was inspired by my father and the things that he would take me to and allow me to be a part of. And then, yeah, for now, um, going going into this master's degree, I think I want to be a part of... Um, the rebuilding of Syria when there is a new political solution for what's going on in Syria. I want to be a part of, of whatever the solution is. I want to be a big part of that. And I think that by this master's, it's going to help me. And it's going to, I think it has to do with conflict resolution, with uh, diplomacy to a certain degree. So coming together with different, with different aspects, different parties, different people that think differently, but how to come up with a solution and communicate to find um, to find a common ground. And because of kind of how my life panned out, I think that, as I said, I, I understand different people, how they think, how they, how they acclimate their life. So I think that I can, I can be a good position for that. Um, whatever it is in the future of, of a new Syria, that is not what it currently is. Um, so being a part of the political solution whether that's on the ground in Syria or whether that's from far away advocating for these people and for um, a change in, in, in the country and its future. Hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of things there. I guess the one thing that I'm, I, I, I'm sure will come out at various points in the conversation, I have this deep fascination though with, uh, with, with, the 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 youngest generation the the so-called gen z's as we know them now um and there's a lot of interesting data points that are coming out of uh, <clears throat> gen z's i think the thing we again we can chat about this a little bit more later but you said you know you're 23 uh so you're 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 quite young uh in in all the best ways possible right you have your whole future ahead of you you know so full of life and all that uh, I'm a little bit older. I'm in my late thirties. So, <laughs> um, so not old, but I'm not 23 anymore. Um, no, no, that's and, not old. <laughs> right. Um, but, but the, 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 the really, the really fascinating thing for me about, uh, young folks, so say Gen Z, I feel like there's a little bit more of a difference in a positive way of how 
Gen Z will be involved and invested with certain causes or for certain types of activism, which is truly inspiring. Uh, I'll pick on my cohort. So millennials tend to be quite obnoxious about this stuff. So it's a lot of talk. It's a lot of causes. It's a lot of rallies. You make the sign. You put something in your profile. You you know tell people that you can care about these things. Maybe you donate a little money. All those things are fine. That's great. Um, but it feels a lot of it feels like a lot of grandstanding. It feels very uh, superfluous in a lot of ways. And I find that there's a there's a deep authenticity f- with with young people with Gen Zs. They 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 have a they it's um I don't I don't want to say it's even an identity. That's that's not that's not quite what it is because that sounds like that's what they live for per se. I don't want to say it that way. But there's a there's a more of an authenticity of of kind of walking the talk, which I feel other generations more recently have not done. It's like yes, that's my project. That's my that's my my cause, but then I'm going to do all these other things in my life that's comfortable or things like that. And it's not entirely wrong, but it's going to make me I, money and that's going to yeah, keep me right. right, 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 right. And I feel like with 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 the younger generation, it feels very much of uh, a different ethos of of how they 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 organize themselves for certain things. I mean, obviously, climate change is one very big one, which is particularly salient for 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 Gen Z and, and and the generations after um or other types of humanitarian types of things do you again we can talk more long form about this but just cuz you were mentioning all these things about like your goals and your direction of where you're doing things do you uh generally or as nominally in terms of your cohort and your generation do you do you feel that for yourself and do you sense that from from your your peers, your your friends, your classmates, things like that. What's the kind of uh, what's the kind of vibe that you guys have? I guess as a generation, what do, what do you what do you make of this? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think to a certain degree, we had more tools um, to 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 see what's going on in the world more than maybe what older generations had. So, literally, as you're waking up on your phone that's a smartphone now that is different than what it used to be we have all of these things that are that sometimes can be very overwhelming but if 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 you're passionate about something and if you think that you relate to this or you don't even have to relate to it sometimes and i mean i tell this people this all the time i'm not doing what i'm doing because i'm syrian or because i'm this this and that i'm doing this because i'm a human and i think that all of us claim that we are humanitarians and that we we um, we're passionate about humanity and human rights, and when it comes to all of that. But at the same time, you have to do something about it, not just kind of if 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 you're passionate about that and if you want to if that's what you want to do. Um, other than just like you know, as you said, donating money, which is awesome and amazing, and and that's very very important for us to keep doing the work that we're doing. But I think now we're in a place where you can do more than that especially if you're my age, if you're literally, you can make a graphic, you can film a reel, you can film a TikTok, you can literally speak to to your neighbor that doesn't know anything about. And I mean, that's the thing where people think that they know that, pe- that people all over the world know about their struggle. Um, but I think that's a mistake because not everyone knows every single um, injustice that's happening in the world or every single wrong thing that's happening in the world. 
So our job, I think, is to is to show the world what's happening. And it's very easy to do so now. I mean, you can literally film a video. It can go viral in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to a certain degree, that kind of happened with me when I was on the ground, when the earthquake happened and we were in northwest Syria. We were we were there translating for journalists. We were there um, delivering humanitarian aid, et cetera. But I literally, my friend was like, okay, I'm going to film this video of you and do it in English so we can post it and then we'll see what happens with it. And it got millions of views. And I didn't even think about it at the time, but we were in the middle of the destruction of the rubble and I filmed it and I had no idea. You can even see the video. Like my thoughts are not, I mean, it's very, very traumatic being there and seeing all the things that we saw. So I'm not like mentally well in the video, but I'm just like talking and screaming to the camera. But It got the message across and we have these tools now to do these things, whatever it is, whatever you're, whatever you're doing in your life, whatever you're passionate about, you can find a way to, to bring awareness to certain, um, to certain things that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Whether if, if you're literally like a computer science major that is, you know, doing all of that, you can literally make like a, a freaking website that like, you know, just talks about these things that you're passionate about, or just, you know, if you're a graphic designer, you can help out with making graphics about all these things that are going on in the world to make it simple and digestible for people to see when they wake up and open their phone and go through it. So we have more tools. We have, I think, to a certain degree, because of the amount of of uh, overwhelming news and things that we see every day, to a certain degree, it gets that you're like, oh, my God, this is so wrong. So I want to do something about it hmm. um, because we, we have more access to it because it's there in our faces every single day. Um, and social media is a big part of this. I mean, this was never social media was just created around like 20, 15 years ago. So um, so I think that's a really big aspect of it is the tools and the and the uh, access that we have to all these things. It's a it's an interesting perspective because you're right. I think that for a long time people felt, uh, you know, handcuffed, right, about what they could or couldn't do. Yeah, they couldn't get in certain spaces, they couldn't get in certain rooms, they couldn't talk to certain people. You know, because it was very much, you know, kind of how it was done for a long time. You had to know certain things and whatever. But it sounds like you're saying tools and accessibility, uh, some global connectivity through that is uh, a type of it's a type of uh, uh there's many negative things about it but the really wonderful thing about it is that there you gives people um a type of power to shine a light and expose to to to, to many things that many people normally wouldn't so it's, it sounds like what you're describing which is interesting it's interesting to see it from that point of view i don't i don't entirely i see that but i don't have that point of view as being raised in that way or coming up in that way i have an older perspective and other people do so it's an interesting way to see it from a different uh vantage point um you talked about uh all the places that you've that you've been so i have you can we can we can do it on on two layers we'll start in the surface layer and then we'll go a little bit uh deeper of it so two things you, you you picked up you you're you're a whole uh mixture of ethnicities and identities which is which is super great uh i don't have quite as many as you do but i have a few i have i'm also multi-ethnic 
Um, so we're we're obviously the best, right? We're obviously the best. You know, obviously. it's always the best, right? You you got you got a foot in different worlds, and you just you know kind of just seamlessly get through there. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, and then and then you've lived a lot of different places as well. So maybe we'll, we'll <clears throat> let me just start, I guess, maybe with the the places you've been. You kind of mentioned some of them, so we can do it in a timeline fashion, and then we'll talk about. Uh, I guess identity, but um, so you were born in Saudi Arabia, is that right? I was born in Saudi, yes, and then okay. have you lived I was in around, Syria? I didn't live in Syria. I okay. would go uh, every summer. I'd go for around like three to four months summer vacation, spend okay. all of mm-hmm. summer in Syria mm-hmm. at my grandparents' houses. Um, but yeah, I was born in Saudi, and then when I was around three years old. Um, we decided to go to the U S my family decided to go to the U S my sister was born in the U S and then when I was, so four years later, when I was like around six, we moved back to Saudi. Um, and then, so that's where I did like my elementary school, my preschool was in the U S and then it's funny because like when we were in the U S and I was like a child, my dad didn't allow us to speak English at home. So he wanted me to keep the Arabic in me, like my, sure. my, my first language. And, um, and that's how I think is one of the reasons that I'm fluent because when I went back to Saudi, we were in international schools and school was all in English. Everything was in English. So, um, yeah, I went back to Saudi and then when everything kind of started happening in Syria, when we saw that as a Syrian nationality, you're not getting anywhere in life. Um, and that we needed to find some sort of, asylum somewhere else because for many reasons, but, uh, the U S was, was our first option. I mean, my whole dad's side of the family, my uncle and my grandparents had also left Syria to go to the U S after, um, everything happened. So 2013, we went to the U S as a tourist visa, but then we applied for asylum over there. Mm-hmm. And then that was very difficult. I mean, asylum in the U S is it's difficult to get. So yes, yes it is. Um, yeah. And then somehow, some way, um, my, my mom's side of the family got to go to Canada for asylum from Jordan after they fled Syria with everything going on, they went to Jordan and then from Jordan, they were able to come to Canada through, um, sponsorship. And then that's how we were able to cross the Niagara fall, um, bridge and get into Canada and apply for asylum legally because my mom's parents were in, were in Canada. So in 2016, um, so from 2013 to 2016, I was in the U S did a couple years of school there and then went to Canada and applied for asylum there. It's way easier in Canada. Um, and yeah, so you live there for three years and then you can apply for citizenship. And that's what happened from the first month we got permanent residence, which you have all the rights as a Canadian does, um, except for voting. Mm -hmm. So that was first month in, which we didn't really have in the U.S. We had work permits and everything, but it was it was different. Mm -hmm. Um, And also another aspect that comes into why we went to Canada was Trump was getting into like, you know, into Mm -hmm. play. So um, and my dad lived abroad, so he would come and see us once or twice a year. Um, and with Trump getting into, getting into, into his presidency, he, like, he was talking about what he was going to do. The ban was in play. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we were like, 
my dad's not, we're not going to be able to say my, see my dad if he doesn't get the visa to come and see us if he's going to be banned. So that was another aspect of it is that Canada, we were able to, to have um, my dad on our case and he was able to also get a permanent residence after a while. So we were able to see him. Um, and then, yeah, I was in Canada from 2016 to June of last year. So around a year ago from now, um, got the citizenship and I'm a Canadian now, which is fantastic. I mean, Canada's the only place that's felt like home and just, it really like, it really, really helps when it comes to refugees and people coming to seek refuge, um, or get asylum in their country. Um, there's so many programs, there's so many, and I mean, they're a country based on, based on immigrants and based on which the U S is as well, but it's, it's a little different. Um, when it comes to Canada, they're very, very good with their, with, with all of that. Um, and then, yeah, I did, I did two years of high school, um, and then got into undergrad, undergrad. So I was a total of around seven years in Canada, six, seven years. And right now I'm in Istanbul in Turkey. Um, been here for a year and we were finally reunited as a family, all living in one country. Very nice. Um, which is nice. Um, and that's a little bit of a timeline kind of and thing. The, and, and then you said, uh, where, where is it in, uh, the master's program again? Uh, where is it in what? Where's the master's program that you're starting? It's in, in, in Doha. Oh, in Qatar. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then you'll have another move as, yeah. <laughs> as well. As well. Okay. So I guess you're, you're absolutely right about the kind of, you know, East-West kind of thing, I guess, if you will. Um, my my first question is, on, on, on this aspect is, you, you kind of mentioned it, but I guess when you, let me ask it a different way. When you think about the concept of a home what does that usually look like what's the what's like the the first thing that comes to your mind like what is that that idea of of home in generally and then what is it for you i guess what do you think of i think to me i think it's it's family to a certain degree um so that's why it was difficult to feel at home in in so many places because that many of the points that we didn't live with my father because he was working. Um, and that's what made it a little bit difficult to consider home for some places. But then when it came to Canada and, and we were there, it just, it really felt like you, you were getting, you were getting the feeling of home. You were getting the feeling of safety of, of, of um, what's the word you're comfortable and you're secure in where you are. So no one's going to tell you, Hey, get up and leave kind of thing. Um, so that's what Canada felt like. And also just family. And, and right now I think that here feels like home, even though we're kind of going through some things over here, the racism, the craziness over, over here in Turkey towards Syrians. Um, so in the streets, whenever people, that's like the first question that people ask you, um, when they, when you get in a taxi, when you get in a store, when you get into anything is like, where are you from? Because you don't look Turkish or whatever. Um, and at some points, if I don't feel the most comfortable, I just say Canadian because I don't want to get into the headache of like all of that because of the racist rhetoric that's going on over here. But that's another aspect that we can, I guess, talk about if we want to, but yeah, home is, I think family and then 
family first. And I think for me, because of the nationality, because of the security that I feel now as a citizen, wherever I am in the world, I have that security and that kind of blanket that you never really have as a Syrian by having a Canadian nationality. So it sounds like home is family. And then I guess also in accordance with that is some type of safety or comfortability. Um, why, why do you think that is, I guess, for you specifically? I, I hear people say this, right? People will say, well, you know, home is where family is, things like that. And I don't think it's a cliche. I, I, I think it'd be very genuine. I think people are typically very genuine when people say that. But mm, okay, let me ask you this way. Do you think that the concept of home can be different for different people, right? So like because of your particular experience, that's that's what you have, right? That, that that's That's different than a nation state that's different than uh, a geographical region that's different than know, a, an act of blood or, 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 or an actual house. Right. So like a lot of, I think if you were to ask, let's just, if you were to ask a lot of Americans, maybe Canadians do, but you would, if you were to ask a lot of Americans say, well, what's home and say, Oh, my home's on, you know, three, six, 18, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever, ad, whatever, they'll give you an address. They'll give you an address of like, yep, yeah, my parents still live there. I grew up there. I think that's a lot of people experience, not just in the U S I think in other places too, but um, so I guess for you, yeah, this idea that that home, home is where family is, I guess, is that like, so in the opposite. So if your family's not there, it doesn't feel like home or or that you're you're just sojourning somewhere. Kind of flush that out a little, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, it's complicated because of, as you said, my life experience. Um, so it's it's so many layers. Um and as you said, home is different for different people. But I guess if, yeah, I guess maybe if my family's not there, then then it doesn't really fully feel like home. It's not the physical house, that's for sure. Um, that's out the window. Um, and then I don't think that it's my blood at all. It's not, also it's not my ethnicity or my other nationality. It's, it's I think, family at first. Um, because when you don't fully get to just like be with your family 24 seven. And as I said, like my whole dad situation, um, I got to grow up with my dad. I had my childhood until I was 13 years old with my dad, but my younger siblings, my baby sister, who's seven now, I still call her my baby sister. She didn't get to live with my dad at all. Um, and now for the first year of her life at eight years old, now she gets to live with him. Um, so I think when you're missing that aspect, then you realize that it is family and that 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 security, as I said again, and just having your family be there for you whenever you need them is very important. And I guess when people don't have it always, then you realize the importance of, this, of it. Um, and I think that's why, even though a lot of people say it and it's cliche, I think that for me, it is that because I know what it's like to not have it, to not have one of my parents be living with me. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, I think that's what it is for me. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I, 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 I also wonder, um, mm, 
two things. I think maybe your family particularly, so your your, your specific family uh, unit, and then also somewhat, um, I guess you could say culturally. So there's a lot of people that they they don't have that sense of family, right? There are some people in some places where, you know, I'll use these terms kind of loosely. I mean, they're they're a little bit dated, but you know, people think of like an individualistic mindset and a collective mindset. Those terms are again, I think, a little mm-hmm. out of vogue, but I'll go with it. I think for people that have a more of a collective mindset where like family is a very central part, family is important to everybody. I'll say that, but for some uh, places, it, it is more cent- there's a centrality to it, and I think for other people, they would say like, my, I never knew my parents, or they were really abusive, or you know, dad was an alcoholic, or, and I wonder, again, how that would be different for people, right? So because, here's what I'm saying, you're equating a sense of home with family because I think probably of your family, they sound very lovely. Obviously, there's a maybe some cultural pieces. But you're you're connecting the two, which makes a lot of sense. I think other people would probably divorce it. My family isn't had that mm-hmm. sense of safety or community, or there's too much. So my sense of home is with uh, my peers, or a certain region, or maybe a maybe a, a nation state, or a city, or or a physical place. And the reason I say that is is obviously not to make a comparison. But I think that's really interesting when people talk about this concept or this idea of what home is for people, right? So when you're talking about displaced people, when you're talking about people that are are, are refugees or immigrants or people that um, or that aren't, it's I think it's a really interesting idea to have about what does it mean for someone to think about home when they think about that. Most people. I would say, think about home a lot of the times, maybe in, in middle, late childhood to like adolescence, because it's like a formative year, right? Those are formative years of all of your memories. So for example, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, I, I, this, it's always a fun question. And so I, I like hearing people's different answers. So if you ask me, that. if you ask me, where's, where's home for me, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I have moved around a lot as well, but never uh, outside of kind of one place. So for me, home is not my country, it's not my ethnicity, it's not my family. I'll say that. Family is terribly important for me. But I don't, I, don't, I don't think of home and family as connected in the same way probably that you do or maybe other folks. Uh, for me, home is my, uh, my state, right? That's okay. not because I have some allegiance to my state or something, or my state's better than other states. So obviously for... for for my for my global listeners, you know, the United States has fifty states, right? And so I live in one of them, um, and I, I I always have lived in the state of Maryland, which is just mm-hmm. outside Washington D.C. And um, I think because I grew up in different parts of the state and I moved around in different parts of the state, I don't have I also don't have a physical home that I can think in my mind of. Well, that's my house, you know. What I don't have that. Um, my parents have been have uh, you know have have been split for for a little bit now. Um, I was older when they did, but uh, that's that's uh, also different for me. So it's maybe that idea of family. Um, but yeah, and there's something about a kind of I don't want to say allegiance, but there's something about it where it's like 
if I travel and as soon as I, I come into, into the state, uh, I feel, oh, I'm home. Like this, 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 this space, right? It's really a space thing. This space feels, that feels like I can be anywhere in my state and I'll feel kind of at home. I know the people, I know how they are. I know how they talk. I know kind of these things. There's all the things that we like, the things we don't like, our kind of temperament, kind of middle, moderate temperament, more or less. I like the diversity we have. I like many, many, we take care of each other, um, et cetera. So, so many things. And I think that that's interesting because when I've asked other people, they'll say, well, my home isn't, isn't a state or a country. It's if I'm, if I'm in the mountains, that's home. Like I could be in any mountain structure, pretty much anywhere, but I'm going to feel at home in the mountains or in the countryside. Or Some people say home is that. And I, I, think, I think understanding this concept of home is really important when we, when we talk to different people from different places and wh- what that means for them, right? So like, let's say if you and I are talking about this idea of home, but you're thinking about how it is in your head, but I'm thinking about how it is in my head. That's two different things, right? Those Completely. are two different things. Mm-hmm. One's not right or wrong. None is not better or, or worse than the other. None of that stuff, but it is totally different. And I think that that shapes or molds how we engage or communicate with people um, in different places around the world about this idea of home, space, where they feel a lot of those things. Um, what do you think? What do you think about, about some of this stuff that I'm, that I'm saying? I think, so this is like, I guess a little bit of backtrack, but I mean, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a shelter is, is at the bottom. So you need to have a shelter. You need to have a roof on top of your head and that security of, of having a private space, um, to, to be your physical home. So when we talk about refugees or displaced people, they don't have that. And they haven't had that for years. I mean, when it comes to Syrian refugees, some of them have not had that for 12 years. People have lived in tents for over 12 years. And I've been to those camps that are like literally stuck to each other. So Mm -hmm. when like, even if the thing is closed, it's like, you can hear the person having conversation in the next tent. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's also important to have that security, to have that. Um, I think security is a deep part of it. So when, as you said, when you're in the state of Maryland, you feel like I have a connective, I have a connection to this because of when I'm here, I know how things go or how things or how people act with each other mm-hmm. um, and how things work. So there is a bit of a security aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Again, when it's when it's family, maybe security means different things to different people. But um, maybe for different people, it's family. Maybe for different people, it's it's literally the physical roof um, because a lot of people haven't had that. Um, maybe it's as you said, friends or a certain home because that's where they had the best memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is important to recognize the differences and I, I guess also the privileges that a lot of people all over the world have, but don't come to terms with recognizing it because you don't even feel like it's a privilege. Mm-hmm. But it, when you take a look and when you see what's going on in the world, then you realize that like, oh, this is a privilege and I need to be thankful for have and grateful for what I have mm-hmm. because... Certain people don't have that security. Certain people don't have those um, 
ability to to take care of the, their family, to take care of their loved ones. Um, and yeah, family, and that's what that's what family is. You to to take care of one another and to um, make sure that they're fine wherever they are. Um, and I think that's what my dad offered for us, even when he was so far away. He made sure that we were fine wherever we were, and he made sure that we were good, we were set, we were we were so 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 comfortable. Um, so it levels up for me the security wise to family. Um, so maybe I think security is important when it comes to it. Yeah, totally agree. I would say, yep, <clears throat> safety and security. Physically, yes, 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 this is absolutely. But I would say also emotionally and psychologically because mm, you're going to act and behave differently when you feel safe and secure in a space, right? right? Mm-hmm. Over time, it, it, in in a, in a, in the acute acuity of the moment, but also over time, right? So, for example, I'll use your story. So, mm-hmm. you probably feel more you tell me how you feel but i'm I'm gonna infer here a little bit canada feels more like home i would think probably because of the time you live there right you lived in the like really formative years you went to high school there uh, or college there sorry um and uh and you know that that's where you're kind of coming into like you know identity and and, and seeing the world and kind of starting to kind of branch out on your own and things like that but also you, you had said that you know obviously you have citizenship which maybe we can talk about a little bit of that of sorts as well of what that um symbolizes but you had said that canada probably feels the closest to home even though i i mean canada is a it's an interesting canada is an interesting place i love canadians and i love canada it's an interesting place though um it feels hmm it feels like it feels like for for everybody in some ways like it's it's like when you have french canadians which kind of are there but it just feels very this is going to sound wrong forgive me canadians forgive me but it, it feels amorphous like it feels flexible it feels um it's a, it's a melting pot that's what it's known as yeah i uh, i don't i don't usually use that that phrase but yes yes it's a type of yeah, there, there's there's a lot of mixture, and there's like um, that that idea is there. So there's a it, it, it does again. Canada isn't like this, you know, perfect, you know, kind of uh, haven of sorts. But I think I mean it has its faults and it has history. But it feels um, like that is a part of like how they how they do things. Even even when you're in Montreal or or Quebec City or something like that, even though they have a little bit more of an influence there, but. Um, yeah, every time I've—I mean, I've been to Canada. A few, I've been to Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal, and, and it feels, um, yeah, it—it's it, almost like you can't quite place it. It's like, yes, this feels familiar. I've seen that somewhere. Yes, I've heard this before. It's there's so when you think about like terms of like identity of like what it means to be Canadian. Again, maybe Canadians that have lived there for generations would say otherwise, but it feels at least currently or in the modern time feels. Almost like you can't, yeah, yeah, you almost can't place it. So again, all that to say, I wonder if some of those things um, and the time you spent there and then your family being there and all those things, if it, if maybe that's why it feels more like home than, 
New Jersey, which, you know, I mean, last New Jersey's not great. New Jersey's kind of miserable, if I'm honest. I, I'll say that. That's those are that's a couple states away. I mean, I, I'll I, I have no problem saying that it's, it's not the greatest place. Um, I, or maybe other places you've been. It, maybe that's why it feels home because you had the most type of safety or security. You you could you could you could you could flourish or you could explore and find more of yourself in a space, and that influences behavior and, and how you think about things. No, or, or am I inferring too much? I think I think I agree with you to the to the most part, but I think another level for me personally is because of the nationality and the security. Um, because as I said, a Syrian passport is literally as good as toilet paper. It's, it doesn't get you anywhere. It had, and I mean, Syria and, and what's going on in it. That's a, you can never, I can never go back to Syria. I'm blacklisted. I would get killed the minute I step foot in there. So that does not feel like home for me mm-hmm. right now. Maybe it changes. Maybe it's different. Maybe that will feel like home later on because that's my culture and that's my language. And that's, a lot of other aspects, but in Canada, I felt like, I felt like I was, I was secure. I was safe. I was welcomed. I was accepted. Um, I didn't feel that in New Jersey. I felt like I was very, very different than the rest of the people that, and I lived in a very small, very small, very, uh, suburbs, um, in Jersey. That's where I lived in a very small suburbs, like 99% white people, um, so I was literally like one of the only Muslims in the school, me and my sister. Um, so I have faced, um, I have faced racism and I look white as hell. Like I look very, very white. I'm I'm Circassian. Mm-hmm. Um, but because people knew that I was Syrian, they were like, what the hell? Like go back to ISIS, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had, I heard those things in, in the U S in Canada. I did not mm-hmm. from my personal experience. It might be different for many, for different people, obviously. But from my personal experience, I, it's very, very diverse in Canada. And I, I've heard this before. It's like, you don't know who to be racist to in Canada because there's so many different, <laughs> so many different people from different backgrounds. So it's difficult for you to be racist because there's so many different people. Um, so I didn't experience that. I didn't experience feeling like I was alone because of the amount of integration and because of the amount of programs and things that are, that are there that were not in the U.S., uh, maybe because of where I was or because of the certain circumstances. But in Canada, I felt that I felt like I was getting my rights as a citizen of the country. I felt like I was participating in way more things. And as you said, the age and the and the period of my life that I was in, obviously uh, finding myself, finding my identity, finding what I want to do with my life. So that is 100% an aspect of it. And you just kind of raised my attention to that because I didn't really think of it beforehand. I was like, oh my God, like, because of the nationality, because of this, this and that. But I get, I, I get, I get it a little bit more because of what you said, the period of my life and, and figuring out what the hell I am and what I want to do and how I could connect myself to all these different aspects of my identity. Um, and I had a huge Syrian community in where I lived in Canada. I had a huge Circassian community where I lived in Canada. Um, and and I have those in the U.S., but I didn't really connect with them. Maybe, again, because of the period of my life, because I was like an awkward little kid, still teenage kid. Um, again, so yeah, period of my life. Maybe I didn't involve myself as much as I should have in Canada. I did that a lot. I, 
I got myself out there and school wise and, and friends wise and everything wise. So you are right to all those degrees. And I just learned that about myself. So thank you. Um, but <laughs> that's good. I mean, well, it's, I think it's good to, to, to be aware of, 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 of how, how we're in development. I mean, on, on those two points, I, I, two other things on this is, do you think with that in mind that anywhere could be home? I'm going to say that. Or, or sorry, has the potential to be home. I'll say it that way. And then the second thing is, you mentioned about, you mentioned in the beginning, you mentioned it now, about going back to Syria, going there when, 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 you know, maybe things are a little bit different. Maybe you could, you could live there if you, if you have, if you wanted to do that. Because it's, you know, your people, culture, identity, et cetera. I'm going to, I'm going to push a little bit here. Do you think, I've heard this in different contexts, so I obviously Syria has a particular context at the moment, but um, is it possible that could be, um, let me put it this way, is it possible that you could be different for Syria, right? Now you're, you're, you're obviously who you are, um, which, which is great, but I, I wonder that people that don't live in in a country that's near culture with their with their people group or whatever and then they come back after many 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 years and many experiences and many things there's not a rejection of that from from that space but it's not how we have it in our mind sometimes and that it is almost like you're the foreigner yeah. in your own place and that happens i've heard that kind of story with people often what do you, what do you, what do you oh, think about that? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you feel about that? I mean, I would imagine there's some fear or anxiety about that as well. I mean, what, what do you, what do you feel about that? I 100%, um, me personally, my personality and what I carry in my beliefs and my, and my, even culture, my, my, how I act, how I dress, how I look, um, is not fully Syrian and is not fully Western, whatever. So I don't think that 100% I would feel like I belong somewhere ever in my life. Only at home, only with your family. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Um, Which, I mean... A lot of people go through this and, and all, all, all immigrants that I know in my life that have lived in the West and they get back home, I haven't had the chance to do that yet. So I'll tell you later when that happens, but um, they do feel that rejection as if they're a foreigner, maybe that they've sold their nationality or sold who they are to live in the West and to grow up in the West, to go to school in the West for their opportunity, for their life, for their job, whatever. Um, so... I don't feel like I will be fully accepted wherever. No, I do feel accepted with who I am in, in Canada. So I can, I can do what I want. I can say what I want. I can be who I want um, and not feel any type of rejection. But that when it comes to going back to, I guess, Syria, which is not the Syria that is now, but whatever, the better Syria that will hopefully happen someday Mm-hmm. Um, I would be very, very different and I would have different thought processes, different opinions, beliefs. Um, 
and just, I guess, direction because I did grow up and I do have influence and I do have beliefs that those people don't have. Um, so yes, 100%. Yeah, that's it's it's very interesting to to think about it that way. Okay, so let's let's uh let's move we've sort of been dancing around it I guess so we can talk about it directly. So um I I'm I'm really interested for your for your thoughts and opinions. We can obviously start with with your personal uh kind of arc here but um but then make it more general I guess. But um so this idea of culture and ethnicity, yeah. So um let me, let me see if I get all these right. Right, so we'll we'll say Canadian uh, as you know, he's full full citizenship there. So, but uh, I guess maybe m- more proximate is, I, I guess Syrian, right? Blood wise, yes. is that is that is that primary for you, or or do you do the Circassian thing first? Which which one is it? Which one? How do you see primary? I guess I don't. Maybe that's not the right way to ask it, but you you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's it's different with me. Um, if you ask, if you ask another Circassian Syrian, they'll just say that they're Circassian. Sometimes uh-huh. they won't uh-huh. mention the Syria aspect. Mm. So, and that's the thing when it comes to like ethnic minorities, they belong more to their to their original original ethnic um, background than to where their culture is. But it's mm-hmm. weird because mm-hmm. I do have culture of both Syrian and Circassian. Mm-hmm. I. I, I eat the food of both. I, I know mm. the culture of both and the traditions of both. Um, so I think to a certain degree it's 50, or maybe not 50-50, but I think more Syrian culture-wise than I am Circassian-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but blood-wise, that's a completely different story because blood-wise, I don't have any Syrian or Arab in me. Mm. Um, Bloodwise, and I've done the ancestry DNA test, <laughs> um, and it literally came out to ninety eight percent Caucasian Antolian, um, mm-hmm. which is the whole region of the Caucasus Mountains, Armenia, and then also Turkey as well. Mm-hmm. So they kind of group all of those into Caucasian. Uh, so that's what the blood aspect of it is. But I think that we're not always what our blood is, and and culture wise, I yep. am more than I am. Circassian, and that's not a bad thing. Um, people might, some Circassians might think that that's not the best thing, and I should um, fully just be what my blood is, or or whatever. But I think that um, all the countries that Circassians fled Russia and and the whole genocide that happened, mm-hmm. um, they came into they came into Georgia. Uh, and some different little aspects in Lebanon, Egypt, whatever, but mostly they were concentrated in these three countries and they came and they built their whole life there. Um, they, they were given, they were given opportunities and homes and, 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 and a whole new life in the countries that might, that they migrated to um, after losing everything in the genocide that mm-hmm. lasted 200 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think it's culture-wise, I think I am a little bit more Syrian than I am Circassian. Um, and, but I love my Circassian identity and my Syrian identity, I think, equally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am more connected, I think, to the Syrian side. 
Okay, so yeah, I'm not I'm not a big you know, uh, you know skin and blood kind of thing. I think that's silly where people overemphasize it. I should say that. Let me put it that way. Um, I mean, I think it has utility, but I think it's overemphasized a lot. Uh, how do I say this? I'm gonna say I'm trying to understand kind of your composite of things here. So, can can I can I can I can I try and frame it a little bit differently? So. Mm-hmm. Ethnically, it sounds like Circassian and, and Syrian. Um, culturally, though, there's some Canadian there, yeah, right? Because as we just discussed, you know, some some elements there. Anything from Arabia? Because you were born there, you live there, and, and do you do you do you have anything culturally of how? You see that or no? It's just more of like, yeah, that's where I was born. It's on my birth certificate, whatever. But really, it's culturally the two primary. And then I guess maybe Canadian and we'll say kind of the quote unquote West. I don't know. How do you see it? So I think, um, I mean, my childhood to a certain degree was in Saudi. And I loved my childhood. I mean, we had a huge, also again, Circassian and then Syrian community. Um, but that's the thing with minorities. Wherever they go, they have their community. They have like, yes. they kind of do their own they, thing. They find they find them wherever they're at and they hang out there. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I don't think culture-wise, I don't have any Saudi culture in me. I don't think so. Okay. But I mean, when it comes to Arab culture, it's very, very similar to one another. So I guess in general, Arab culture, specifically Syrian culture, is what I kind of... Um, Am so it's Syrian culture, Circassian culture, Canadian culture, um, but I don't think that I would have specifically Saudi culture in me. Uh-huh. Uh, I love I love it, and I love that I was able to spend my childhood there and and you know um, grow up there. I mean, people have this really weird um, when I tell people I grew up in Saudi, they're like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." I'm like, "No, like it's fine. It was fine. <laughs> I don't think why you." They have a certain idea of what it is in Saudi Arabia, and that's that's what's yeah, and animating mean, them. It's, it's the media, and it's all of that. So I get it, but it's like I then I tell them, I'm like, no, it wasn't like as bad as you think. Like it's fine. Like you don't have to put on the headscarf. Back then, you had to wear the abaya, which is the black thing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do that anymore. Um, and it's it's culture, right? So I'm not going to go there and tell them, hey, I don't want to wear this. I mean, it's, you're coming to their country and. You know, and I, I do agree that that maybe sometimes people shouldn't be wearing that when they come to the U.S. because it's a different culture. People are going to look at you differently and maybe judge you. But that's that's personal. I mean, that's too deep. But mm-hmm. um, it was a it was a great childhood. I had I have great memories there. Um, I went to school there. I I went. I learned. I learned so much from school. Um, but I wasn't really exposed to. Saudi people because of maybe my international school, because of my community that was Circassian and et cetera. So, I mean, yeah, that's a little bit of, of that. I guess you were there, I guess, before MBS took over, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, but I guess, yeah, I think that's, uh, I think I got the timeline right there. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's, it's been different. It's, there's been changes in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, kind of before him and then afterwards and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So, Okay, so maybe tell tell folks a little bit. Uh, I think a lot of people will be 
there's actually two points here I want to ask on this, but a lot of people won't know circassian uh people uh, the, the the people might maybe maybe people have heard about it i i would i would assume uh not a lot of people know um about that people group who they are um and kind of what's happened and the diaspora and all that i know a lot of them are in anatolia which is uh well a large part of it is in uh central to to eastern turkey could uh, currently although it was a bigger uh a bigger um region uh at different points in history but yeah yeah just just tell us uh who, who are the circassian uh peoples and little i guess overview and then and then uh where they're at now and yeah and how how you how you identify with with them i guess yeah so actually last i don't know if it's last week or the, so it's the 21st of may um is the anniversary of the day of the genocide mm-hmm. um I'm not sure if it's the first day or the last day of the genocide. I need to specify that, but it's the 21st of May and it's, so we had our own land and which is, which is called the Caucasus mountains, which is now modern day Russia. So back then, um, they, the Russians just wanted to take the land and wanted to, to have it for themselves as they do. Um, so they basically, they were fighting, Circassians were fighting for their land. They, they, they killed up to 2 million um, Circassians. And this is from Russian military reports that were found in Georgia, which is one of the military bases that they had at the time. Um, state that over, over a million and a half were killed. Um, and if you look into it and like go into the stories, it's very, very brutal and I mean, as they were migrating to get to the boats and to get to, uh, into the sea, um, there was a lot of kids that were literally just walked on um, um, and, and yeah, like murdered literally by, by the Russian invaders that were invading um, the, our land, which is the Caucasus Mountains. And we are, so the big arch is Ediga, and then it comes under, it would be the Dagestanis, the Chechen, the Circassian, the Sherkes, um, and then there's different tribes as well. But um, yeah, usually, I mean, do you know Khabib, the the fighter? Mm-hmm. So he's he's Dagestani, which is a part, which is one of the tribes of Circassia. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so a lot of them stayed back in Russia because um, they were they like didn't fight for their land or whatever. Like they just stayed there. So a lot of them are Russian, but all the ships that left the land after they fled the genocide, they came to Turkey, Syria, Jordan, mostly. And um, I think the most of the population is in Jordan, actually. And we're known, what we're known for is like loyalty and military, like militarism to a certain degree, because we fought for our land for that long. So we know like, all of that and we're known for being loyal and for 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 defending our land for defending our our um how do you say it our pride and mm-hmm. and our culture and our etc so yeah they came to all those countries and and but the beautiful thing about circassians is that they are so 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 um what's the word connected to their culture. And they kept that for all those years. 
Um, and usually, a Circassian is not allowed to marry a non-Circassian. Not not allowed, but it's very frowned upon to marry a non-Circassian because we're so lit- we're not. There's not that many of us, so you want to keep the bloodline going, and you want to keep it as pure as possible. And I mean, it's you can see that through me. I mean, both my parents are Circassian. Their grandparents um, are Circassian, but my dad's grandparent is Armenian, and that's another aspect of what it is. But um, when the Armenian genocide happened, he came to Syria. He was adopted by a Circassian family and then he married a Circassian woman. And then we come from underneath, but, um, yeah, we were very, um, connected to our culture. We have a language, we have our own food. We're known for our dance. Um, if you want to look up Circassian dances, they, they wear these beautiful long dresses and then the man wears this like really cool suit with like bullet things in here. Cause like that's what they were when they were fighting. Um, so we're known for, yeah, we're known for mostly when you say Circassian, people sometimes say like, Oh, the dances. Um, so it's a beautiful dance. Um, so yeah. And then we, we, we kept our culture all those years. We have traditions that, Arabs don't have. So we're known in like in the countries that we immigrated to. So Syria, Jordan and Turkey, we have those traditions that are different than than Arab traditions. So people know Circassians do this, this and that. Um, And they're they're beautiful traditions. It's very, very, very respectful. Like if someone walks into a room that's like a year or two older than me, I have to stand up and I have to, you know, I can't be sitting when they come in um, because of respect for the, for whoever's older than you, um, traditions that are also very, yeah, just very respectful, very, and we kept them to this day. Um, when it comes to the language, I didn't learn the language. It stopped at my mom at my parents. Mm -hmm. So, and I mean, I don't need to know the language because I'm not like in Syria anymore where in the communities they used to speak the language between each other. Um, that's different now. Um, but yeah, when I was younger, like my parents would speak and I'm like, what are you guys saying? Like, I want to know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what they were saying. Um, but yeah, that was just one of the, of the immigrations that my bloodline has done because when they came, they came to Golan Heights in Syria and then Golan Heights was taken or sold by the Assad regime to Israel. They, my grandparents had to immigrate from Golan Heights to Damascus and then there was a whole Armenian side of how my dad's grandpa had to leave Armenia to come to Syria. And then there's the 2011 um, displacement that my grandparents had to leave. My, my dad left Syria when, when they got married, right when they got married, they couldn't stay in Syria because that situation was very difficult. They couldn't find jobs. They couldn't, it was difficult to live there. Um, so I always say that my whole bloodline is based off immigration from one place to another, to another, to another. And then I did that. I went from here to there to there. So um, obviously I don't have it as bad as anyone else when it comes to Syrians. And I, I'm very, very privileged. And I have a little bit of survivor's guilt because I didn't go through what Syrians went through, um, whether that's bombardment or or displacement or death um and seeing a war basically so i do have that survivor's guilt that's like really really bad sometimes but then i think that's what pushes me to do what i do and 
keeps me doing what I do, even though sometimes it can get very, very difficult. Um, and yeah, difficult, difficult is the word. Um, yeah, it keeps me going is, is, is I'm so privileged. So that's why I need to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm safe. I'm privileged. I can say whatever the heck I want. I'm protected by, by my nationality, by, by, um, where I live, et cetera. So I can be the voice for the millions that don't have a voice anymore. Um, when it comes to my work side of things. Yeah, this is very interesting. I, I, I think the, if I remember this, Circassian uh, genocide was in the 19th century. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think I'm right on that. And if I remember correctly, I believe the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire at the time, received Circassians, Circassians uh, into what we know as Turkey now. Is that right? Was there a a, a initially a good relationship with with the, the ottomans i can't i can't I, I'm, I'm rough on the history here or or was it contentious i can't remember um i don't think it was that good i don't I know remember. my history as well yeah i can't that. i can't well i can't remember because of like initially when people go to a certain place they go where they're going to feel okay like they're not going to be harmed or hurt so i know it's uh, uh, syria jordan and turkey so i can't remember i, I could be wrong but um and then obviously yeah i mean turkey has a you know history with the armenian genocide as well um and so then yeah we have what's going on in 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 syria but i guess the the thing there is is that is there by blood um again i don't want to overemphasize it but for you personally syria is 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 there how do i say this like most places in that part of the world, there's just a long, long, long history. Uh, I mean, Damascus and Aleppo, I mean, these are, I mean, I mean, we're talking about civilizations have been thousands of years, so many civilizations in that region um, that there's different, I mean, it's, Turkey's the same. I mean, Turkey has, has so many different people groups. Um, when you when you say that you're Syrian, I mean, is there is there a, a blood aspect as well uh, of that, or that's just kind of where you guys were, and that's where you located, and that's where you were? And then, second to that, I guess is about, um, I guess again for 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 listeners that don't know, it's different than it is, I think maybe in other parts of the world, but. There's so many different people groups in Syria. Like it's not just like Syrians, right? Maybe that might be the like kind of when when I think of Syria or 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 even Turkey or even other places, I don't I don't think of like, oh, these are Syrians. I think of like, okay, yes, that's where you were born, that's where you grew up, or that's your nationality, but like what people group are you? Because like, that's just how you, typically it tends to break down. Um, how do you, I guess, understand there or, or correct me if I'm wrong, how do you conceptualize Syria? And the people groups that live there, and I guess kind of where your you or your family kind of fall in, in the Syrian part of it, because that, that's the main another main part that you identify with. Yeah, so I mean, for your question, blood wise, I don't have any Syrian in me, um, and as we said, Syrian is is right. is a lot of different minorities and that's a lot of different groups. There's um, there's Turkmen, there's uh, Kurds, there's Greek Orthodox, there's there's Circassians, there's um, Dur- Durziyin, there's Alawites, 
Um, and some of this also goes into like religious minorities, which then we're crossing border, we're crossing lines, but um, yeah, it's, it's so many different bloodlines, so many different um, backgrounds that came. I mean, Damascus is one of the oldest capitals in the world. Yeah. So, so obviously that is, that's gonna, and then there's Assyrians as well. That just came to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's a lot of different minorities, a lot of different religions. It was, it was so many different people all living together in this one country. Um, And as you said, it's the same for the region. Um, And sometimes I do get upset that I didn't get to live that myself. I didn't get to, you know, um, be there when Syria was not what it is now, mm-hmm. um, which it, it has been, it has been under dictatorship for over 40 years, but mm-hmm. you know, when it was like not as deep as it is, as it, as bad as it is now, um, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I tell my parents, I'm like, yeah, you guys are very, very lucky. Cause you got to grow up in a place where, you know, you felt like, you know, you relate to these people, even though, even with the, with the differences, you spoke to the same language as them. Uh, you, you went to the same school your whole life. You, you know, you had all these things that we don't have, we may have them very, you know, better than what you had, but, um, and that's subjective better. Um, mm-hmm. well, when people say that, like, you're like, I'm Syrian or when people live there, like, is there, are, is there some people that say like, I mean, I know this happens in other countries, Well, you know, I'm more Syrian cause I have longer generations or or here, or or less than that, or how how is it? I guess in the culture, because you have a many people groups with that are different ethnicities, and then different uh, civilizations. And it's I mean, it's ancient. It's I mean, it's, it's it's a long, 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 long time in that region. I guess, kind of from your vantage point, how is that? I guess usually received when you when you when you bump into other Syrians in the world, right? And you 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 meet someone, and they say, oh, you know, my you know, I'm from Syria, or my family's from there, or whatever. What's the kind of like, I'm assuming there's some type of uh, comfort or familiarity of sorts, but like, what's the kind of reception or breakdown or how does that usually happen, I guess, in other parts of the world? Yeah, so you run into them and and most of the time it's like, oh, I'm this Syrian, I'm, I'm blank Syrian. So mm. I say I'm Circassian Syrian. Mm. My friend says I'm, you know... Um, Curtis Syrian. And then that's how it is. And then you kind of relate on the aspects that you might have the connectivity to Syria. Um, But there isn't like, oh, my bloodline has been there longer. So I'm more Syrian than you. It's not, I don't, it's not like that. Um, There's like a little bit of, what do you call it? Like, oh, I'm from Damascus. So I'm better than someone that's from Aleppo. You know, like there's that a little bit. Um, I'm assuming that's in most countries though. (laughs) Most people will. That is in kind of most countries so there is that aspect and i mean we have different accents when it comes to when it comes in syria i mean that have that people have that all around the world but mm-hmm. there's aspects like the data which is on the border of iraq mm-hmm. like i can't understand the accent that they speak sometimes it's very very difficult for someone for that's from damascus to to you know understand and then there's that all over the country um but there isn't like, oh, my my ancestors came to Syria earlier than yours, so I'm more Syrian. There isn't, I don't think there's that aspect of it. Hmm. Um, but, 
And I mean, after all that's happened in Syria over the past 12 years, there's mm-hmm. pockets of mini Syria all over the world. Mm-hmm. Literally any country that you go to, you're going to find Syrians mm-hmm. um, because of the huge yeah. um, refugee crisis that happened. And and to a certain degree, it's nice because wherever I go and now through work, um, if I'm going somewhere, I know someone there because mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. because of what happened to our people. Mm-hmm. Um so that's, I guess, nice, but also at the same time, like dark humor kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. because all that's happened to us, we're all around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, I call it like mini pockets of Syria, wherever you go. You know, yeah. like little Italy in New York, like it's yeah, yeah, literally yeah, yeah. like. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the, the last question I want to ask on, on this topic uh, real quick, I, I guess, to to tie it together is how do you, when you, when, you know, in in explaining it to to somebody like myself or just maybe in general to somebody um and you think about uh race and ethnicity and identity and community and all of these things you know what is it like for you in terms of how you see yourself and how do you like how like like what's that perspective? I mean, you've lived obviously in the U.S. a little bit, and you've lived in in, in Canada. You know, in the United States, we have we talk about race in all the worst fucking terrible ways you can imagine. We we just we 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 overemphasize it, we underemphasize it, we talk about it in terrible ways. It's just, it's a it's a fucking train wreck the way we talk about race. Um, and again, the United States has a totally different history, better for worse. So I guess the first question is, how do you kind of see it for yourself? But then when you kind of like have that juxtaposed with other places that also talk about ethnicities or race, what are your, what do you kind of think where you're like, well, that's different for you guys, but like, it's also different around the world too. And like, there's just, I find many conversations. There's no, there's no concept when people think about it in one way here in the U S they just think about it in the U S way and they cannot conceptualize race and ethnicity and how it functions mm-hmm. in the rest of the world globally, which is, I mean, just tremendously obnoxious in my view. But I, I'm curious for your perspective on that, too. Because of my personal life experience, because of my personal background, ethnicity, as we just talked about for so long, um, it's gotten me to a point where I'm just human. Mm-hmm. Like, why is it so difficult for us? To, to focus on your this, 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 and that. So I can't connect with you on this, this, and that because you are that, right. because you're right. different than me, because your culture is different, because you dress different, because you act different. Um, so I think that at the end of the day, and I literally wrote a whole paper about this, mm-hmm. I'm just human. And I think we need to, we need to, fo- we need to talk about this more. Um, just trying to live a average, good um life where it comes to freedoms and when it comes to your rights and when it comes to feeling like you have dignity wherever you are um that's what a human should have and that's what a human should have the right to um whether that so as i said freedom rights democracy a home um opportunities education etc um so we should all humans all around the world should have access to these things but because of the power proximities that we live in and because of the these ideologies that we ourselves have made up um 
we've gotten ourselves to really, really bad places when it comes to racism, when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to, um, oh, you're different than me, so I'm not going to hang out with you because you think this and, and I think that. I think that we need to be making these connections on our differences. If we all look the same, if we all acted the same, if we all mm-hmm. talk the same language, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be interesting as a, as a people. Um, and there wouldn't be the aspect of something different or new or to, to talk about. Um, so even when I'm, when I'm getting to know someone, I tell them that like, this is this, 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 and this is me. What is like, I'm so interesting, interested to getting to know what your story as a human is, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's your background, where you grew up, where you, what you did, what you do in your life, all of those aspects. These are all just because we are human that are trying to figure out our way in this life. Um, so for me personally, I think that through all of this, it all gathers to the fact that I'm human and my ancestors were human and my, and my parents are human and they just all wanted the best for themselves and for their family and for their kids. Mm-hmm. And that's what human nature is, is to want the best for yourself and for your family. So I don't judge people for doing certain things um, for, you know, because you don't, you haven't gone through that yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, I think that's my standpoint on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I I wholeheartedly agree. I, I, again, like I said, I think we, we have this, this perseveration on race. We overemphasize it too much. We, 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 we look at only things so skin deep and I think that culture and ethnicity is important for our history and for our families, uh, and we should maintain that, um, but never over our overarching and prevailing humanity. And something I've thought about more uh, specifically uh, recently is, is how do we incorporate people from different places in our personal lives, not just in our professional lives or in our activism or in our projects that we do. I think sometimes we, we, we unintentionally other people that are an oppressed group or victimized group, uh, again, unintentionally and not trying to do that. But I think really we should have our, our closest friends and people that we connect with genuinely that are in and out of our lives should be, uh, people that we connect with at a human level uh, of very different uh, varieties of different experiences and backgrounds. And I, 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 I think we become better and we become, we flourish better when we're exposing ourselves to in our personal lives to people that push us and challenge us and have different ideas and different experiences, regardless of whether that's through language or race or ethnicity or or, 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 or history or anything else. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the importance of, 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 of humanity, no matter where you find that from people, you could be in one sense of the same race with somebody in the same country, but you could have way more, uh, connection with someone all the way around the world from a completely different race and ethnicity because of the humanity. And that's important to, to 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 have in our minds and when we're we're interacting with people. So I, you know, I'm I'm basically I'm saying everything you just said in a different way, but I I, I fully I fully I fully agree with you a hundred percent. 
So I guess the, the other big, big topic here is on Syria. We've obviously talked a lot about um, your kind of personal story and experience, which was, which is wonderful and and uh, and I think helpful in a lot of ways to understand or maybe give a personal context for things. But Syria, obviously, people um, will know that they've had a ongoing conflict for. Oh goodness, twelve years, um, at least, at least twelve years. Um, so I guess, I guess the the one thing is, is again, I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> I know you're not a historian or whatever, but I guess the question I have is, is what is, um, I guess how do how do we how do we get to this point of where there's a conflict? Um, I mean, Assad has been in in power for uh, a while. Um, maybe talk about maybe how he got there. I guess. If I remember correctly, his family's kind of been in politics though for like forty years or something. So it's just been like a really long time. So yeah, just kind of tell us, kind of give us the the on ramp to how we kind of got to where Syria is, and then yeah, and then talk talk about the conflict itself. One hundred percent. So it kind of starts with Hafez al Assad, which is the father of Bashar al Assad. That's the current president of Syria in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Um, so this guy with his peers started a political party called the Ba'ath Party, and it's a socialist Arab nationalism party. Um, and they, they kind of took over, they got into, into power through different things, but, um, he got into power and they slowly literally took over the whole entire country and all of its entities, which includes um, state agencies, parties, public institutions, civil ent- entities, media, health, infrastructure. Um, and all of these things were then deeply controlled by army and, and state-rooted, um, along with the intelligence forces that controls and, and hears and listens absolutely everything that goes on in the country, all that what the people are doing in their life, um, they controlled um, education. It was very, very, you saw what they wanted you to see. Um, and you can compare it to certain, um, if we talk about North Korea, you can compare it to where if you had a book that didn't go along with what they wanted you to know, you would be in prison for having this book and, and they would question you on how you got it and where you got it from, etc. cetera. Um, so they got into, into place in that. So his dad got into power since 1966. Um, and basically when his father passed away, which when Hafez Asad passed away in the early 2000s, they literally changed the constitution of the country so that his son Bashar Asad would be able to be the president because he wasn't old enough. So they changed the constitution, um, for him to to be the president and to take over um and and since the minute that that they took over i mean i don't know the full full deep history of before when they came into play but since they came into play um citizens freedoms and 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 lives were fully 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 monitored and controlled by by the regime by the government by government entities that are now all entities of the country, including, as I said, 
media, education, uh, civil entities, public institutions, all of it. Um, so yes, they are authoritarian. Yes, they are dictators, um, both of them. And people back in the day in the 70s tried to come out and, and, and speak against Hafez al-Assad and he was doing in the country, but they were all murdered in cold blood. They were all lined up across the wall. And this happened in Hama in the 70s in Syria. Um, they tried to, they tried to say something and they tried to um, stand up against, against what was going on, but they were literally all killed and, 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 uh, and, and um, murdered when they tried to do that. And then they were accused of, of um, Islamic brotherhood just because of that region was Sunni. Um, and when it comes to the Ba'ath Party, they are majority Alawites. Um, so it is controlled by this religious minority, mm-hmm. which then um, they kind of, they they use this as the rhetoric that if you're a minority, we're going to protect you because ourselves, we are minorities. But everyone that has power in this country is 99% of the time Alawites that belong to the regime and are related to the regime and um, have their hand um, covered by blood of these people. Um, And then when it comes to the Syrian crisis that began in, because that's the thing, people call it a civil war, but it's not a civil war. Um, And this is a very, very common misconception that people have, um, which I understand why people have it because of the way it was painted out by the entire world. But the the reality of it is that um, there was an Arab Spring going on in the region and and people were standing up against dictatorships, standing up against these regimes that were in place that did not allow um, civilians their full rights and freedoms. So it started in Egypt, Tunisia. Um, and people all around the region were inspired and kind of tried to do their own replica of it. And the way that it happened in Syria, it was um, a bunch of young middle school aged kids um, that were watching TV and that kind of the only um, limited amount of TV that was allowed in Syria. Um, And they saw what was going on in different countries and they were inspired and they wrote on the walls of their school. They wrote the words of freedom and the words of your turn is next doctor. Mm-hmm. So just basically literally graffiti on the wall. Um, because Michelle Assad is an eye doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's an ophthalmologist, in, right? Right. Yeah. He yeah. studied in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's what they wrote on the wall. And then these kids who are children were detained. Um, they were tortured to death. So their nails were, were taken off. They were they were beat to death, um, and then obviously, if you're the parent of this child, you're going to be ag- aggravated and you're going to be angry and you're going to want to do something. But these people, the way that they started their revolution is 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 beyond. I can't even put into words how beautiful it is. And and you can look this up in Daraya. People went out with roses in their hands. Um, protesting and, and, and peacefully asking for freedom from this dictator regime. So there's photos of this um, that you can look up in Dada in 2011. 
um, of people going out in the street, holding up flowers, holding up roses and asking for freedom. But the way that they were, that they were, um, that they were met with is, is bullets. And, and, and this regime basically, um, detaining anyone that was in these protests. If you were out in the street next to a protest in the region where there was a protest, you were detained, um, and questioned. And, and most of the time you were, um, tortured to death. So it slowly started in, 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 in some cities more than others, but then people were inspired and, and also went out and, and protested for these things. But then again, they were met by bullets. They were met by, by, um, by, uh, what do you call those? The, 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 the bullets that have the air in them. So those, the, those as well, they were met by bullets. They were detained, um, and killed. So, yeah, I mean, that's how it started. It was a beautiful, beautiful start. But then that's how the regime uh, reacted, because obviously and I mean, there is this this notion in Syria that you hear is that the the walls listen. So you can't say anything that can get you in trouble. Mm. You can't say anything um, against the regime, the way they work, the way they the way they acclimate and the way they run the whole entire country. Um, so it started very, very beautifully. Um, and then obviously when, when the regime was doing this and killing people and taking over, um, these, these areas, the people themselves, if you come into my house and you kill my whole entire family, I'm going to want to react and I'm going to want to protect my home and protect my people. Mm -hmm. So these people, um, they also started to, um, I guess, militarize and, and have their own weapons to protect their own land. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when you can say that the Free Syria Army was created. And you can, and then from there, a lot of different groups and militias and, and different um, things came into play. But the way that it started was so peaceful and so beautiful. Um, and it's, it's, I think, in my personal view, it's one of the most peaceful revolutions that started. But then it was... It was it was taken in by by so many different things. Different people had different objectives and goals from this. Um, different countries funded different groups. Um, different countries had different interests. So they were funding these groups for different interests. Um, but the way that this revolution became and 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 started is is, is so beautiful. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, people will remember 2011 for the Arab Spring, and there was a lot of optimism behind it, a lot of positivity behind it. Um, I even think here in the U.S., the Obama administration at the time felt a lot of optimism about it as well. Um, a lot of a lot of many, many, many big powers felt optimism about it, uh, saying people are you know in this region to, trying to decide what they how they want to conduct themselves and live their life. I guess the, the question I have about this is from 2000 to 2011, when uh, Assad was, you know, uh, uh, you know, president and whatever and ruling, were there people that were dissatisfied with how he was doing things? I mean, obviously, you know, you start tearing up, you know, constitutions or changing them or, you know, you're, there's a kind of unilateral power that's going on. Obviously, you know, if his dad was there forever, 
were people just kind of like, oh, that's how it is? Or were people like, yeah, well, it'd be nice if we could have something different? Like, what was, I guess, the kind of temperature prior to 2011? So 2004 and 6 and 8 and 9, like, was it more of like... It was fear. It was fear. Okay. Okay. So it was not... Yeah, so don't want to rock the boat, if you will, right? We don't want to say anything, but we don't want to do anything because then it might, things might kind of get too, too, too chaotic. So kind of the, the Arab Spring was the kind of the propelling force to say, okay, well, this is kind of the, now we go, here we go. Now this is when we can do this. And as you're saying, it starts out peacefully. I guess when you fast forward, uh, I don't want to go all the way up to the present just yet, but there was a there was a point. Uh, this is, I think, what many people will from the outside will remember. Of course, there's horrendous things that I that I've seen and read about. But really, I think the the chemical weapons that were used uh, on on the Syrian people um, was was I mean a, a pretty big moment, right? I mean, it was a it was a pretty big moment. I don't know if it was the first time it was used in our history globally. Uh, uh, in, in a mass way, and I don't know how many times it's been used since then, but that felt like you know this was the quote unquote red line in the sand for for Obama and the, and the West, and and then nothing happens, and you know, but um, yeah, how, how did it? I guess the the optimism of the Arab Spring was great, and then it kind of deflated, um, and people have written about that in some ways. Uh, even even in Tunisia, where where it seems that things have kind of gone backwards a little bit of sorts, and but I guess that aside, what was it with Assad and then with with Syria in general, and maybe the the, the government or whatever, to escalate it to such a kind of barbaric way of of of, I mean, committing crimes against humanity? How did how did it escalate up to that point? I guess is my question. I think that. Um, so at certain points, Assad, he, he got help by who he needed to get help from. So he got help from Iran that is currently owning him. Um, and everything that he does is by instruction from Iran along with Russia. I mean, Russia now is, is, is busy with what's going on in Ukraine and they're, they're not doing so good, but back in the day and when they got involved in Syria, which was around 2015, 16, um, they they were there and they helped him. They militarized the regime even more, and they gave them more weapons. They gave them more uh, power and, and army and and forces. So this was also because certain countries were for, were funding the opposition. So when the opposition got their weapons, and they we got we got really really there was a point in time that the opposition had good control over certain areas in Syria. So the opposition that was militarized by different nations as well, four different agendas and four different, um, it wasn't for Syrian people to be free. It was for different goals in mind. Um, but I think that the regime saw that these people are not giving up. It's been, you know, five years. It's been two years, three years. These people aren't giving up. I'm, I'm taking them. I'm killing them. I'm torturing them. I'm tucking everyone away, but they're not giving up. Um, so he did, he, he used, he used airstrikes, he used chemical weapons, he used, he used um, the most disgusting kinds of weapons that should, I don't even know why they are created. Um, and, and, and 
Yeah, so the OPCW literally came out a couple months ago and said that this regime, along with its allies, has used chemical weapons on its people, I think, over 200 times. And the ones that we talk about, the ones that we talk about are literally only a couple. Um, so it's it's way worse than what we know. And then and then it's disgusting when you when when these people literally died from breathing air. And then you have like Russian propaganda people along with Syrian regime people that tell you, oh, this is fake. Or they did the 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 whole thing with the they were you know, the videos of the kids or what or the kids that are dying from breathing that air, they're like, oh, this is fake. This is staged. This is whatever. And, you know, they prove it their own way. Um, I mean, why would you want to, um, why would you want to fake that? And, and we have records of, of all of this pain and all of this trauma and all of these war crimes that the Assad and his allies did on these people. There is more evidence that we have against Bashar al-Assad than people had back in the day against Hitler. There's photos, there's videos, there's there's scars, there's uh there's survivals, there's there's so many different um archives that we have that can prosecute this regime for what it has done, for the war crimes that it has committed on its own people. But the way that they um, the way that they showed it to the world is that, oh, I'm fighting terrorists in my country mm-hmm. and I'm fighting these jihadists and these terrorists in my country. So, so I can do this because these people, you know, they're, they're terrorists and they're going to do this, this and that, but it was literally civilians. And there's so many untold stories of these people that I listen to every day that I'm in contact with every day. And I talk to in person every day. The, the, the torture, the, the detention in serious prisons is, is one of the worst things that a human can listen to. The torture methods, the way they get creative with these methods and, and things that they do to these people, it's inhumane. And I mean, you can look up Caesar photos. Um, there are 55,000 photos that a, um, that a military official took of these bodies because he, that was his job to, to authenticate the bodies that were being tortured to death to show his general on top of him. And then he sneaked those out of Syria. Um, and then he came to certain people that came to certain people that ended up coming to, um, Syrian emergency task force. And then we created the Caesar sanctions on the Assad regime for what it has done. If you see these photos, um, that will show you, literally 1% of the brutality of this regime, because this is just what we can see and what we have evidence of. So imagine the, 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 uh, the amount of so much more that we haven't seen. I always, I always describe it as the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Whatever we have seen from this regime is only a small, small percentage of what was able to get out, what was able to survive and what was able to come here and tell us these stories. Because, because I mean, the number that the UN has about the number of deaths in Syria comes to around half a million people. But we have key witnesses and key testimonies from the gravedigger that you can look up that we're working with right now um, as the Syrian Emergency Task Force. He tells you that every single week, three times a week, I would get three trailer trucks full of dead bodies from from the detention centers 
that I would have to dig up mass graves for and, and put these bodies by a bulldozer and put these bodies in these big mass graves. So he tells you that me, myself, I have seen over 600,000 bodies because he worked for 10 years. Mm. Um, so this is just what one person has seen. So I can't even begin to explain the, the proximity of the brutalness of this regime and, and the war crimes that it has committed along with its allies, uh, Russia and Iran, um, and what they've done to people that simply came out in the street peacefully protesting for freedom. And then things got into play and things changed and things um, altered the route of, of, of what the Syrian people wanted themselves. Um, but that's just the way things panned out. And it's so unfortunate and it's so sad. But the number is not half a million. I can tell you that for sure. The number of Syrian people that have died in the past 12 years is not half a million. It is 100% above 1 million human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there, I mean, you know, all of the atrocities that you've described, I, I've heard other reports as well that there's a... And and sometimes we see we see some of this come through. Uh, the The treatment of women and children is is is. I mean, it, it's 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 it, the treatment of 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 Syrians in general, men, women, children, etc. But particularly, there has been some pretty grotesque treatment of of women and children as well. Uh, what 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 can we make of this? I guess specifically for these 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 groups as well. So when it first started, they weren't really detaining women as much. So women got way more active than men because, you know, what you'd hear that all these men are being taken and detained and tortured and killed. So then the women started to feel like, okay, if I do it, I'm going to be fine. So I'm going to go and I'm going to drive this car filled with aid to bring it to this area. Um, but then the regime was, was like, oh, okay, I'm, I cracked the code and now it's women that's doing this. So again, these women were, were detained, um, and, and tortured and, and raped. Um, a lot of them sometimes were what the time of their detainment, they were with maybe their baby. So their baby was also taken with them. Um, and they had to live in, in the worst inhumane circumstances in literally like the smallest, um, prison cell with, with many other people. Um, and the way that my colleague explains it, it's very, very, very good. Ahmad Shughri that works with us at the Syrian Emergency Task Force. And he is a survivor of Syria, um, Syria uh, Assad's prisons. Um, so the way that he describes it is is so, so, so eye-opening for you to kind of try to, to imagine what it's like, where it, I'm sure that it's way, way, way worse. But um, yeah, people were raped. People were were tortured they were um they were used as 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 um oh if you give me this i'll give you back your your wife i'll give you back your daughter um and then when sometimes when these women somehow got out of prison they were looked down upon so badly because of because of what they went through because they were now because they were now raped because they had gone through that. So they were, sometimes they were sold by their, like they, their family didn't want anything to do with them. 
they're, you know, so that, then that gets to like really, really weird culture, religious aspect of it all. But it's so disgusting um, that these women, they didn't have anyone to talk to about this because if they did, they were going to be, you know, sold by their, you know, they're not going to be in their family anymore, etc. After living these traumatizing experiences and, and what they've gone through, if they somehow made it out, it was, it was not a good time after you made it out as well. What are, I guess, what is it that keeps, um, I guess, uh, from, from your perspective, what is it that keeps things continuing the way they are? So we can answer, ask this in two ways. For the opposition, what, what keeps them going? Um, and for, for, from, I guess, Assad's perspective, what keeps him going for continuing to do this? Is it just a kind of, you know, two wills and see who cracks first kind of thing or who surrenders first kind of thing or w what keeps it going, I guess. I'm, and I know you've mentioned the, 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 the involvement of Iran and, 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 and Russia, which is, again, both of those, uh, the, the, the regimes in those places currently are pretty terrible. I mean, obviously what, what's been going on for Iranian women uh, in particular is over the past year or so, year and a half has been, you know, I mean, catastrophic, a lot of good coordination and work with, with that, but that's been, been, been awful. Um, and then have there been, I mean, discussions of, of maybe we, we do some type of peace. We, we, we cease kind of fire. Like, what, what, is there some kind of attempts? I think that maybe there has been, but I guess where are we at, you know, in middle of 2013 or middle of 2023, uh, where, where, where are we kind of at with it? What, what, I mean, what, what is there to say, I guess, about where this could be in six months, a year, or whatever? Mm -hmm. So Syria's, I mean, it's very, very, very complicated um, as to who has what regions now in Syria. Because in Syria, you know, there's, there's Russian occupation, there's Iranian occupation, there's Turkish occupation. So everyone has their hands in Syria. And I mean... Um, to a certain degree, I think the world knows what happened in Syria and they know that this regime is doing this and they know that he's doing it along with Russia and along with Iran. Um, so I think the world does know, but there hasn't been a collective um, will to say to, to, to fix this because I think they they like having a region of 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 instability and a region of, you know, um, this to keep going on because we're going to have access to the Middle East um, through this because we have our, you know, our bases or whatever. Um, and it's very, very sad because, I mean, if there was an international will, they could, you know, the U.S. or the, the Western world could have removed this regime so easily. They have the tools, they have the resources, they have the access to be able to, to remove this regime and figure out some sort of political um, re-establishment of, of who's going to rule this country, of a government, because they know what they've done. But there hasn't been an international will. Um, and, and if you ask someone else, they're, they're going to tell you that, oh, no, like, you know, the, like, people maybe don't... And I think... How do I say this the right way? People in power know what's happening in Syria. 
They just haven't had the will to collectively come together to be like, hey, listen, we're going to kick this guy out. We're going to get a new um, a new government in place to to. And maybe this could be our fault because we haven't given an alternative. Um, because the opposition is not an, the alter, the opposition is is it's very very sad, but they you know they 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 are not as 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 good as they have to be. They're representing this revolution. They're representing what these people have gone through, um, what these people have lived. They they have different also goals and agendas because of money and power, etc. But again, sometimes I talk to people and they say that, well, maybe they haven't, the international community has not had a will to do this because we as Syrians have not given them another um, option for who they can put in place if this regime was removed, Mm. let's say today. Mm. Um, So there is a blame on us. I I do agree with that. Um, But we're too busy with, with, you know, the humanitarian aid, with with figuring out, um, you know, uh, prosecuting these people, with figuring out sanctions on the regime, with working on this, 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 and that, and, you know, keeping up with everything. So it's, it's very, very, very complicated. But I think that if there was an international will to change this, it would have changed when Obama was in place, when, when these people knew what was going on, um, but didn't, I mean, I mean, Trump came in and he, you know, he defeated ISIS. He could have defeated the Assad regime as well if he wanted to, but, but, you know, he has his own, um, agenda in place as well. But then if you look at statistics, ISIS has not killed the amount of people that this, that the regime has killed in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not as brutal as, as the Assad regime was in Syria. Mm-hmm. And by the way, ISIS was to a certain degree, created by the Assad regime. He had been, um, he had been prisoning these people for so long. And then kind of when this was starting, he's like, oh, I'm going to let these people go because I know what they're going to do because I have driven them outside of their mental. So when they get out, they're going to, you know, they're going to join this militarization that's happening and join these people and create their groups and, you know, be those extremists that I want to fight. So, there's also been research and proof that this was that this happened in the beginning of the revolution. He let go of these people that he had in prison for years. And then along with the help of different terrorist groups that already were in place, so Al-Qaeda or whatever, um, ISIS was created and, and they had their own agenda. But um, yeah, it's it's so complicated. But then the solution is so easy if there were an alternative and an alternative that is that is good for the people. Um, yeah, there's a few things here. Uh, I, 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 that makes sense, and I, I agree with you. I I remember there was a people. You never know. Like people say oh, so many things, um, world leaders and stuff. And there's always those what the one or two comments that people will latch onto that really just just kind of stick. And I remember, um, uh, you know, kind of second term of Obama, he's, he, he makes this comment that people have really not appreciated, which I can understand. Um, it sounds a little dismissive and a little tone deaf. And, and I, 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 I think the criticism is fair is he, he basically kind of gives up 
and says, look, there's nothing we can really do. I mean, there's just, there's, we, we just don't, we don't want to get into this. You know, we, we're, we're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan, at least from U.S. perspective or the coalition or whatever. And, and I think the comment was, this isn't verbatim, but it was something like, you know, these folks have been fighting each other for a long time, thousands of years. And people, I mean, that's a very dismissive statement. I mean, it really, it really, sincerely. And, and I've talked to a few other folks that have been like, yeah. That we that's not cool. We we don't like that. That's not a nice thing to say, uh, at the very least. And I can hear that. I think that's a fair criticism. And it it seems that there was a lot of frustration, very flustered, um, not really knowing where to go. Cause it it was, I think, part of the thing of okay, if you go all in, you know, in some ways, as you're saying, Syria is more complicated than Iraq or Afghanistan was, and it would just feel endless. And it's a little bit more, I guess, organized in terms of regime, things like that. I guess there was this other thing going on in 15, I believe. I can't remember. Years all blur together. Where we had, mm, I don't like to use the word crisis, but, you know, I think that's how it was portrayed. This refugee crisis, if you will. And Angela Merkel got into some you know, deep waters with this as well in Germany, where she had, I don't think it was just Syrians, but a large part of Syrians were coming into Germany in, in that summer in thousands, thousands. I mean, so many. Um, and she got a lot of criticism for this. It's too many. It's too fast all at one time. Um, we can't, we can't take care of all the world's, you know, uh, people's, um, and so it, it seems like there's this, from one vantage point, it would seem that the West, so to speak, yes, whether it's the UN or 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 the or the EU or NATO or the US or 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 all the big bigger powers, they just kind of have lost interest. There's less interest now than it was in in 12 and 14 and 15 and 16 and many, many other challenges is, is that kind of how it feels? And what do you make of this kind of like, yes, there's an interest. Maybe we could get involved. Here's some of the things we've done, but this feels not, uh, something that they want to, to, to truly get involved in, like maybe in other places they get involved in, I guess, how does it feel in terms of that kind of involvement? So a comment on what you mentioned about what Obama had said. Um, I think that when it comes to that is that sometimes people in the region of the Middle East are not looked at as human as people everywhere else around the world are because of this painted um, extremist you know, crazy, like, oh, these people have been fighting and fighting and fighting. Mm -hmm. um, that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, there has obviously been stability in the region, but created by these uh, powers that are from the outside. I mean, the whole Middle East is painted by a British French guy. The map is painted by them. Um, and then these these things came into play where it comes to power or, or you know, wars or whatever and then there's always that that you know i'm gonna come in and i'm gonna fix it 
mm-hmm. but they never really fixed it. Mm-hmm. So it only created more and more, more and more, you know, complexity of what was going on in that, in the region. So I think that, how do I say this? I mean, yes, they have lost interest and yes, it has um, been so long, but at the same time, back then there could have been something that was done to stop these things from happening now. Um, you know, I mean, and the UN has been the most useless international organization that stands for, you know, um, human rights and, 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 and all of what they say that they stand for. Um, I mean, 200 times using chemical weapons on, on civilians. Yeah. Where was the reaction to that? Yeah. Um, the UN itself could have done, you know, so much, more um and we saw this again with the earthquake mm-hmm. where the hell was the un right mm-hmm. people had thought that oh this is a natural disaster this is not this is not i said bombing us to death this is a natural disaster maybe the un will give a shit about us but no they didn't and nothing was delivered into northwest syria until after two weeks of the earthquake or, or 10 days of the earthquake mm-hmm. um my tiny small organization that that doesn't work any humanitarian work. We were there before the UN had entered. I was there myself before the UN had, had, had done any action. Um, and when it comes to Northwest Syria, the hardest hit region of, of the earthquake, it was, it's a besieged area with 5 million people that have been displaced from all over Syria to come to this rebel held region of, of, of Syria that is also sort of controlled by Turkey. Um, but that's, that's a whole other thing. But I think that, um, they they were so they could have done so much more um and that's their job to know what to do i know it's complex i know that there were so many different aspects and and you know who has control over what but they could have placed this regime in place and and told them and got him out um and and prosecuted him for what he had already done to all these people and and for the power that he had and what he was doing um but again and again and again, the whole world has looked past Syrians and Syrians know this and they're so, um, so, so, so disappointed. Um, they just don't even, they have no hope anymore when it comes to the people that are still there on the ground that have, have not seen, you know, a house in 12 years that have been living in tents in 12 years. And it's like, did the world just completely forget about us? Like what, you know, like what's the solution to this? We are tired. We are exhausted. A story that I was told during the earthquake of a guy that had survived um, bombardment, that had survived the Duma chemical attack, that had survived displacement. This guy, when the earthquake happened, he didn't die. He survived the earthquake and he was screaming into the void. He was screaming, oh God, why have you let me survive all these things? Just take, just kill me. Like, take me away. Why are you letting me survive all this misery and all this pain? Um, so this is kind of where they're at right now. Um, it's very, very, very sad. And I don't know what the political solution to this. I mean, and we're now we're seeing the whole, like, you know, the Arab League, you know, welcome this guy right into where they, they, 
kicked him out 12 years ago. And I mean, now you're just like, oh, it's like he didn't do anything. He didn't kill all these people. He didn't torture all these people. He didn't detain all these people. Um, And this is just inspirational to many other war criminals to keep doing what they're doing because, hey, guess what? Okay, you'll get kicked out for a couple of years. You'll be welcomed right back in if no one does anything against you. Um, But it's it's so bad. Yeah, I mean, the recent... <clears throat> the recent uh with the Arab League with having Assad back there was um I don't I don't want to say I was shocked, but I was I don't know. I mean I, I felt pretty again, I have no connection to this, whatever, but even for myself as an observer was like pretty defeated. There's I mean, there 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 have been many warlords and and dictators and things like that. Um but I, I think the how long and how how instantiated and and the uh, and how Assad has done things to his own people in Syria, and that we know about it and we see it, and the things that we said were a kind of red line, just so that kind of stuff is super frustrating to see it kind of normalized. Um, and I know the U.S. has you know a bill of like anti-normalization which feels fine but it feels sort of empty it's more just like a i think it's i think it's a good thing to say but it's like a thing to say it's like well what's the action behind it like or, or you know what i mean like it just i'm not against it obviously but it's like it just feels like yeah we're gonna appear that we're doing our thing and everyone feels great and we can still forget about it and not have to really actually do anything is what it feels like on my side as an observer, I'm sure you have feelings about it as well, but. <laughs> yeah. So the anti-normalization, the Assad regime anti-normalization bill is a bill that we have been working on as our organization. We have been pushing for because it is important for the U S and to come out and say these things. Sure. Um, and to say that you shouldn't be doing this because I mean, all these people have their, their relations with the U S and they can't be risking um, all the things that they get from the U.S., a lot, vice versa, you know? So what the U.S. gets from these countries and what these countries get from the U.S. Um, and th- this is going to put sanctions on on different governments that are normalizing. This is going to put sanctions on airplanes that are, that are flying into Damascus that are aiding this regime and what it's doing um, to this day. I mean, people don't know this, but there are still hundreds of thousands of detainees in Assad's prison to this day. Um, and then there was this whole thing of like, oh, these are the these are the, you know, rules that the Assad regime has to, you know, agree to and work on for them to be given our this place in the Arab League and for them to, you know, um, be allowed back in. Um, it was shocking because to a certain degree, because some of these nations that were at the Arab League and that were doing all of this were one of the first supporters to the opposition, to militarizing the opposition for different, you know, as I said, for different reasons. So it's very, very weird that after all those years, you were the, you, I mean, your money was who was, you know, fighting this regime. Um, And then now it's like this whole new thing of like, oh no, like, oh my God, welcome. Like, you know, you can, Come back, do your thing. Everyone's going to welcome you and, and, and pretend like you didn't do anything of what you just did. 
Mm. Um, so whoever it is, whatever it is, we need to be standing against this normalization that is literally, it feels like it's out of this world. I mean, I don't know if you know the show Black Mirror, mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. feels like a Black Mirror episode. Mm-hmm. For Syrians watching this, mm-hmm. it just, um, the personal connection of like, this guy and his army and his people have killed my whole family, have bombed my house, have displaced me out of my house into a tent. So seeing this for someone that has gone through all of that just doesn't feel real at this point. And whatever we can be doing to, to stop this normalization, to hinder it any kind of, in any kind of way, we need to be doing and we need to be working on, even if it's a bill that's going to maybe just, you know, um, say these things and, and, you know, put these pl- things into play into place. Um, and this bill is also actually closing a lot of loopholes that were, that a lot of people were able to, you know, fund the government, fund the Assad regime through loopholes of the Caesar sanctions, um, through different people. Now we're, those are going to be reestablished and, and for another, I think seven years, um, this government will be sanctioned. This government will not be allowed. The U.S. will never be like allowed to normalize or, or you know, have any relations to this country, uh, to this regime. So it's very, very complicated, and it's very, you know, it's. I mean, with all of this and everything that we're saying, all that I can think of is is the people and the humanity of of what these people have gone through. So just thinking about it from their perspective literally shatters me into a million pieces um, to see the world do what it's doing and to see the world overlook what this regime has done and what what the whole world collectively um, has done to the Syrian people. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good first step. in some ways, um, but obviously, you know, many more to, 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 to do, I guess I want to ask you a little bit about, um, this, this a little bit more abstractly about refugees, right? Mm -hmm. So we talked about home, right? We talked about placement. We talked about identity. We talked about all of these things and, In an ideal world, we have we could have these ideas about our our fellow humans. Uh, in the real world, unfortunately, it doesn't quite happen that way. In your mind, from your perspective, how do you feel, and who should do this about the responsibility of people that become displaced from other places? Right. So, Canada has has uh taken in specifically syrian refugees the united states has a small amount done that germany has see turkey uh, and other places but i guess more abstractly um because there there is a i think for the people that are coming from a particular place it it is a lot for them to go to a place that's very different. I mean, and 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 I mean, it's a lot for what they're going through, 
right? Legitimate trauma, right? Being displaced, uh, tons of violence and aggression, psychologically and mentally, not to mention physically being in a different place. But then you have this whole other problem of, at the very least, acculturation and sometimes assimilation, if you want. Now, some people could do that easier than others, and sometimes not. And coming from a place like Syria, which is different than Germany, I mean, a different history and different cultures. It's different than the United States. It's different than Canada. It's different than a lot of places. That becomes, there's the issues you already have of like, like literally acute trauma. Of, of it, There's lots of resiliency factors there too. So I don't want to just make it about that, but there's, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot. And dealing with that. And then on top of that, having to acculturate to another country, another environment, another uh, culture and people groups and things like that. And so I guess in that, in thinking about that, I guess, how do we, how, how do you think we, we approach things like that of, of dealing with kind of two very different issues almost at the same time? Because look, you, you mentioned earlier, right? You can give someone a roof over their head, maybe have them connect with their family, you know, three meals a day, you know, clean water, et cetera. Right. And that's wonderful. But long-term downstream, how do people learn how to thrive and flourish? Now you can't solve all of that at one time. I understand that. I understand that, you know, at the very least, like let's get people safe and get them their basic needs. But sometimes if you're taking mass amounts of people, you know, who's, who, 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 where's that responsibility lie and how do we do that, you know, ethically and, and morally and effectively? Because I can tell you the arguments, maybe you've heard them too, about what people here in the West say about taking folks from other places. I can tell you those other arguments. Some people will say, yeah, open doors. And then there's a lot of other terrible things that people say about that. And I don't, I think the way they say it, I think some of the ideas on their merits are wrong, but that doesn't mean that some aspects of them aren't questions we should also ask as a, as a society, as a group. So I'm curious about what you, from, from your perspective, what you, what you think about that. So I think first off, it's very, very, very important for the whole world to see these refugees as human. Number one thing we should be doing is to see these people as human beings who have gone through circumstances that could have been you if you were born somewhere else around the world. Yes. So totally agree. first off to do that. And then who should, who should have that responsibility? I think the whole entire world should have this responsibility. Um, whoever has the means and, and, and the needs. There's a lot of nations that have the needs for immigrants to come in, to work, to, 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 you know, to, to get the economy going. Um, so it's obviously, yes, it is hard. Obviously, yes, there's a lot of efforts for assimilation, for integration, for education. I mean, there's the language barrier, there's a culture barrier, there's the so many different barriers that we can be talking about. But I think that um, at the end of the day, these people are humans that fled a war, that have fled death, that have fled bombardment. Um, so these people do deserve a right for, for finally finding a place that 
that is a residence, that is a home, that is a, a place that they can be safe, that they don't have bombs falling on top of their head every single day. Um, and I think that, so from what I've seen, the experience that I've seen, Canada's what they do and, and the sort of, um, what, from what I have seen through my own eyes. So there's this thing called church sponsorship. And there's a couple of people that come together um, and they basically have the means and the funds for bringing a family and taking care of them for one year, fully for one year. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that they do this is that they rent a home for them for one year. They bring them and put them in English classes. They... um, they teach them about the culture of the country, about the, the traditions of the country, about the food of the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, yeah, so the family comes, they're welcomed from the airport. It's a whole new place, right? It's a whole new thing that these people have never seen other than, let's say, in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, so they, 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 they take care of them for one whole year. And this family is up on their feet by the end of the year. They can, they have now, you know, jobs that they can somehow so sustain themselves through. Um, and they can work up from there. Um, but obviously not all nations can do this and not all people can do this. So I think having the programs of integration um, these social civil programs of integration of, of, you know, language, uh, ESL. So I guess ESL in, in English speaking countries, but also, I guess in Europe, those, those things, um, there's also the, as you said, the mental aspect of it all. So having, you know, social workers that can speak to these people that can, you know, see what they need. Cause a lot of them need some mental attention, some sort of, you know, someone to talk to, um, because of what they've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then there's also like, you know, the, the social assistance from the countries that these people go through. If you're very, very not doing well, um, money wise, you can get, you know, benefits, whether that's child benefits or, or social benefits, etc. Um, disability benefits. I know there's a lot of, um, people that I deal with personally because of my work. Um, there's war, uh, injured people that come in from, from Northwest Syria to Turkey to get treatment in Turkey. And then, um, they, uh, they kind of create asylum cases to leave and to go elsewhere in Europe because, you know, the medical attention isn't as best here as it could be. Um, so they get like, you know, medical, um, medical funds because, you know, they have, uh, you know, their, their legs are, um, amputated because of war injuries, because of bombardment, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so much that can be done and so much that could be improved when it comes to dealing with refugees, when it comes to understanding what these people have been through to better your programs and to better how, how you deal with them. Um, I think listening to them is so, so, so important. Um, and giving them a chance, giving them a chance to prove themselves and to, um, and this, I mean, Syrians are, you know, they're very, very hard workers. Um, 
you can look it up and you can see the amount of, you know, successes that Syrian refugees have achieved all around the world. Um, the amount of degree, the amount of, you know, mm-hmm. positions that they've gone through. They had, they didn't have that opportunity back in Syria. Mm-hmm. So they came out, they lived all these disgusting, really, really bad experiences. They came out with, even with all that trauma and mental and, you know, that loss, they were able to achieve all these achievements. And I think that's beautiful because they didn't have those privileges that people from these countries had. They didn't have that education or that, you know, um, all of these things that made them who they, they are is what has persisted for them to, to, you know, be successful and, and, and um, do all the things that they do. So giving, giving people a chance, giving refugees a chance because they're just humans and they want to um, live a good life for themselves, just like everyone else in the world. Yeah, I think it's, um, the thing I would say about that is that obviously Canada has their model of things. And I think that probably works for them based on the the culture, if you will, in Canada. Something like that in a place like the United States um, <laughs> would not work <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I hate to say it. Um, I do think that you could have systems or programs that are going to be country dependent. So, 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 so certain countries are going to have to find their way of how to do that, but some aspect of that where there's certain kinds of uh, benchmarks that are 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 um, uh, instituted. I guess a, a question here on this is, and you know, you don't have to talk too much about it if you don't want to. So, I mean, you're currently in Istanbul, and uh, Turkey just had a an election, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it's not my country, so I'm not gonna I'm gonna pick sides here. I think. <laughs> I think a lot of Western countries um, were pulling for the other guy. They weren't pulling for for Erdogan for a variety of reasons. So he's got some authoritarian tendencies, et cetera, et cetera. I I know a handful of Turkish people. They weren't crazy about him. Um, you know, it's like any country, right? I think any you know, there's going to be people that are going to have claims on both sides. I guess from your perspective, so this this kind of dovetails. It's I guess a small footnote, but you know, you're not from Turkey. You're not, you know, you're, that's not, that's not your country of origin. That's, you know, you're residing there now. You know, what is your, I guess, opinion or ideas about how they're doing things and how certain groups or parties are treating uh, Syrians and Syrian refugees? And is that, is that all, you know, I think like in all elections, in some ways, people have, People are going to worry about their about their folks. They're going to worry about their people, but a country is not going to be concerned about every people group. They're going to worry about their country, or they're going to worry about their other aspects of it. So there's that kind of line of sorts of like, yes, like this is my issue or topic or people group that I'm concerned about, but that might not be other people. So how do you feel? I guess what were your thoughts about it, kind of being there at the moment during that time, and any 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 uh, feedback, positive or negative, you've got for maybe your opinions or your views on that? Um, so I think to talk about the elections, we have to talk about a little bit beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, Turkey welcomed up to 3.5 to 4 million Syrian refugees. Um, a lot. Not a lot. Those, 
That's a lot of people. A lot of people. But no other country did that. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously that Syrians are so 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 grateful for Turkey um, to do that and to allow these people in. And um, a lot of people have gotten citizenship. A lot of people have gotten residence. You know, they're doing so good. You know, they have their businesses. They have their um, they're integrated into society. But then there's also a lot of people that illegally cross and that are not legal here. And, you know, because of the huge amount of people that, you know, we're talking about up to 4 million people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So, and then Turkey had a kind of economic crisis, post-COVID inflation, along Mm -hmm. with other reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's crazy. Like it's it's inflation was like over 80% or something. It's something I I thought it was a typo when I first read that. Yeah. Inflation. It's insane. I mean, people cannot afford to, to you know, pay for their rent. Mm-hmm. To Like their whole month's salary is not enough to pay for the rent that it's, right. you know, currently multiplying by four and five and six times. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was so many aspects that could come into this election and, you know, um, could be talked about, could be fixed in the country. But the number, the only thing that me as a person that has been living here for almost a year now, that was available on the opposition's agenda. So there was Erdogan and there was this Jehebe, which is the opposition, um, was immigrants and was refugees, more specifically Syrians. So, you know, I'd walk home and there's posters that are as big as a building that says Syrians will leave. Um, and, you know, the amount of racism and, and, and hate crimes that have happened to Syrians um, that go un, you know, unrecognized, un, no, they don't get prosecuted. The people that do this don't get prosecuted, et cetera, et cetera. So, there's a huge racism problem here because of the huge amount of uh, of refugees here. Um, not everyone is, you know, a successful, you know, business owner. There's a lot of people that, you know, gone through a lot of shit. So then when they got here, you know, they were. So there's a lot of racism. But then when it came to the elections, the opposition, that was the only thing on their agenda because they knew that. Um, if they spoke about this and if they said that they were going to deport 4 million Syrians, they were going to get the votes. Mm. Um, and then the election, and they were going to do this with, with, you know, um, with a deal with Bashar al-Assad to get all these 4 million people and deport them back to Damascus. And that is simply a death sentence uh, deporting Syrians back to Assad Syria right now is a death sentence because um, they have obviously fled for the reason of the Assad regime and what it has done and what has, it has inflicted on their families. And then when it comes to Erdogan and what he was saying when it comes to this, and he was saying that there's going to be voluntary returns because we're working with Qatar and with different countries with different funding to um, create homes for 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 hundreds of thousands of people to come back to in Northwest Syria. And I don't know if you know this, but Northwest Syria is, is a completely different um, control than the rest of Syria is, which is with technically the Assad regime, but it's also different forces. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but Northwest Syria is basically kind of in control of, of, of Turkey. So, um, he had built, he's building all of these homes for these people to voluntarily go back to. Mm. Um, and that's all that he said about, about the whole refugee crisis here and the whole, you know, everything that he didn't say that I'm going to report everyone. And I'm going to, he could have to get the votes, but he didn't. Mm. Um, cause that's what Turkish people want. They want no Syrian left in the country. Cause they just think that, you know, these people are stealing all our jobs. You know, they're, they're, um, they're getting money from the government. They're getting education from the government, which none of this is true. All they get is money from the Red Cross. That is literally nothing, literally nothing. Um, 3,000 lira for a family with a disabled father that I just spoke to last week. 3,000 lira approximates to. It's not a lot. Um, a hundred fifty dollars. That's a lot. And and when it comes to rent, and these people were affected by the earthquake. When it comes to rent, rent is five k plus. So, how the hell are these people going to live? Not sure. But but Turkish people think that you know Syrians are living um, off of you know Erdogan. You know he's giving them so much money and 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 et cetera et cetera. And you can come. You can kind of um, also. The EU has been has been giving um, Turkey a lot of money to keep Syrians in Turkey. Um, so there's that aspect of it too, because the EU was like, "We're we're good, you know. We don't want any more of these refugees coming in. We're going to give you money, and you figure this out." Um, so then there's that aspect of yeah, they're getting all this money. That's you know all of that, all of that. But that money's not used. It's not given to refugees. They're not even though they're registered refugees. They're legal. You know they have their residency. They don't get they don't get social assistance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then yeah, so the election happened. The only thing that was on the political agenda for the opposition was refugees and Syrians. Um, and then for Erdogan, it was it was you know his whole. He's been in power for 20 years, but he keeps, you know, he's winning and winning and winning all those years. Um, And by the way, Turkey was a literal, like, it was not what it is now before this guy came and did what he did and, you know, um, developed this country into a whole new place, uh, into one of the most touristic countries in the world, etc. So... But then there's a whole younger generation of people that had no idea what Turkey was like before. Um, and then there's the whole thing of like, you know, the opposition pretends that it's like left. Uh, but then if you're left, you're not against, you know, welcoming refugees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're against, you know, they're, they have their view on Erdogan being like a Muslim leader. They don't like that. Um and their people, like their voters, don't like that. I mean, there was a lot of hate crimes that happened last week between the two rounds of the elections against hijabis, against um, people that were wearing mosque attire, you could say. But yeah, and then, you know, the first round of elections took place um, and it was too close. So they redid it again mm-hmm. two, days, two days ago. And then he, he won. Um, so it's, it's so good that he won for refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and for Turkish people, I mean, they voted. So they voted and they democratically voted and people got out. I mean, my dad has Turkish citizenship, so he got out and he voted for the first time in his life. Um, he's a 55 year old man for the first time in his life. He got out and voted. Um, and he was like the happiest person alive. So these people gone out and they voted and democratically Erdogan won. So I mean, I know the West like hates this guy because he's like a Muslim leader that's like successful in running his country and, you know, um, has, um, is bringing up, you know, Islam and a lot of different things. So they hate that because they don't want a country in this region to be doing this good with, with Islamic, you know, with, with a leader that is Muslim um, and a country to be this developed in this region. But that's like a whole other thing that has to do with like Western and whatever. Hmm. Um, but it was very interesting to see. And, and I mean, I'll show you the posters that were up all over the city that literally said the, the campaign of this guy. Kemal uh, um was Syrians will go. Huge posters all over the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were terrified. You know, people were people were staying at home for weeks because of the racism that was happening um, on their license plate. So if you're a foreigner, if you're not like a Turkish citizen, your license plate says a specific number. Mm-hmm. So the, these people had hidden their cars because they were scared they were going to get their cars, you know, messed with. Um, they had hidden their cars. They, I know people in Gaziantep, which is on the border where, where you first talked to me, I was there. Mm-hmm. People, um, we have a rehab center that accepts war injured people that are coming from uh, Syria to Turkey. So we house them, we feed them, we give them transportation to their appointments, etc. So it's a three building, you know, apartment with over 60 patients in it. So, you know, we need to feed all these people, etc. And we work with like, you know, a, um, like you can buy in bulk from this Syrian, um, market. And we talked to him and he was like, Oh, I, I don't have, I'm, I don't have my stock because I don't know who's going to win. And we're scared. We're going to get deported the minute this guy, if the opposition wins. So people were terrified. They didn't know what was going to happen, but you know, it's, it's, they were very, very, um, glad with Erdogan winning because the deportation is supposedly going to be voluntary. It's supposedly going to be done in a safe way. It's supposedly going to be done not through Bashar al-Assad and, and, and a deal with him. It's going to be through Northwest Syria. And I'm hearing some sort of American, you know, um, talks, which is weird to hear, honestly. So we'll see how that pans out. Um, but yeah, Erdogan won, and I think it was, um, and I, I fully disagree with the opposition and what their rhetoric was and, and, and how it literally only had to do with, with refugees and, 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 and what their fate is. Uh, I can see why you pissed off some people though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can see why you pissed off some people. I mean, you're right. I mean, a, a lot of people in the West have, um, you know, they're, they're not big uh, Erdogan fans, uh, you know. And again, my thing is, is, you know, I think elections around the world are all kind of the same in some ways. In some ways they're not. But, you know, I think 
a lot of the things that you're saying are a lot of the rhetoric that we've heard in our elections here and we hear in other places about immigrants or refugees or things like that and people politicize it and they make it about one side over the other and um you know so again uh i get to be i get to be switzerland here and uh i don't i don't have i'm neutral it's not turkey's not my country so i don't i don't have to pick a side i think it's strange a little bit i mean i get it of sorts but when people feel they have to take a side in a place that's not their own i think that's always a little strange to me um but you know i think it's it's, it's interesting uh but I, I like your i like your perspective because um that's not a perspective that we we hear a lot and and hearing that is important whether people agree or disagree is obviously their choice but i think it's important to hear different sides and vantage points the last thing i want to uh talk to you about real quick is something that we've alluded to and talked about um so this will maybe where you're kind of uh you know kind of having a foot in uh in different worlds here um when i think about all the things we've talked about I've, one of the things that you've shared about yourself personally and your experiences um stuff going on in syria i've talked a little bit about the election there in turkey and then the impact it has for 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 global uh, you know um, uh, countries around the world, you know, I think it's it's one of those things where it's like when I find a lot of the stuff that people talk about online and things they get really animated about, I mean i I, I mean, the critique I get about that kind of stuff here in the US that you know I'm always you know dismissive or you know I don't take it serious enough. And I know from talking to people like yourself and other people internationally, there are, we only have one vantage point and, and seeing things through an online lens is very curated, but even still, there are so many things and so many people around the world that are more important than a lot of the bullshit we see online about culture wars, things and things like that. And I, I don't, understand why that's hard for people to get that in some ways not not everybody needs to be an activist not everybody needs to be you know pick your cause and worry about these things but i guess for you um what would you i guess say or what would you want for you know in a, in a, in a not even a perfect world but just in a in a better place of where could people put their efforts uh, effectively for things like the Syrian conflict or if it's other things, um, you know, humanitarian aid and relief? You know, when these things happen, the first thing people do is a hashtag and throw money at something. And those things are maybe okay. But for you, what would be the optimal way in which people can effectively work with, with uh, different types of activism in their own countries or, or internationally? I think the most important thing is for people to know. Um, so I think that you should know what's going on in the world around you. Um, the, the specific things that are happening, how you can, you literally just know is, is very, very important, first off, for you to know, for you to look into um, 
what's happening. So have the knowledge, have the, you know, understand what's going on. Listen to someone that maybe has more, more, more input than you ask questions, reach out to people that are, you know, experts on this or whatever. Uh, So that's step one. And then, and then from there, I think that when you know what's going on, you're going to be pushed to, you know, in some way, somehow to help other than, you know, money and, 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 you know, a hashtag. Um, As I said, anyone, whatever their job is, whatever they do in the world, they can help a specific cause that they are passionate about, whatever it is. Um, Again, I'm not doing this because I'm I'm Syrian. I'm doing this because I'm a human. Because I saw what was going on in this country and I saw and I had, you know, input and and, and, um, personal experience to a certain degree. But also I, you know, I saw and I I listened and, and, and I learned all these things. So when I learned all these things, I felt like I had to do something. So then I went and chose the route that I chose, but different people can choose another route. People, I mean, and not everyone works in, you know, activism and humanitarian aid and, and legal cases or a policy, et cetera. So whatever it is that you do, you can find a, I, trust me, you can find a way to either bring awareness to something, um, to help a cause reach more people, to help a cause, you know, um, be more digestible for for people to to you know listen into and to to hear about. Uh, um, you can you can also always donate money. I think that's also important, even if even if um, sometimes it might feel like um, not as much. But it's also important to donate money. It's important to listen. It's very very important to listen. It's very important to to know and to learn and to see what's going on um, and make sure that you do something, even if it's the tiniest, tiniest thing, um, even if it's literally like a Google search, what happened in blank, um, watch a documentary, you know, like um, speak to maybe if you listen to you listen to me talk right now and then something popped up in your head and was like, Oh my God, you know, I went to school with the Syrian guy. Um, I wonder what his story is. So then you reach out and you make that connection and you, you see how you can, how you can help. Even if it was just listening, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's great. You can, um, you can do that and you can, and you can help someone who, even if it's one person, um, I think that's important. And I think that having that passion um, is beautiful. Uh, to, as a human, we, we should have that and we should be humanitarians and, and to know what's going on with different regions around the world and not just, you know, be so closed minded, never have a passport, never, you know, leave our home, our, you know, our hometown. Um, it's, it's way bigger. The world is way bigger and we have the accessibility and the tools, as I said, to, to learn about, about the beautiful, beautiful world that we live in and how we can, we can help different people that are going through different things. So three points to that. The first thing is, I get this idea all the time about knowledge and knowing and awareness. And not on everything, but I think on a lot of things with activism, I'm unconvinced by this argument. Uh, the one I use is climate change. Now, maybe that's not a fair example, but 
I think most people know climate change exists. It's a real thing, whether they believe it or not. Some small group of idiots don't believe it, and that's fine. But um, like we know what it is. We've seen the rallies, we've seen the marches, we've seen the UN, we've seen, you know, COP this, we've seen the 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 summit, Paris summit thing. We we've watched the documentaries, we've seen the stuff online. Like I don't think awareness on that issue is needed. Or at least not awareness um you know, like in a oh, that's happening. I didn't hear about like maybe there's levels to awareness, but I find on climate change, the thing with activism is like, that's that to me, that step is done. Like we're, we're done with that. Like we're, we, we don't need more awareness or more, you know, hashtag movements. I, I find that pretty, that I feel, I, I think that's ineffective at this point. Personally, I think that now we're at a different stage of how do people have pragmatic action with institutions for climate change that's what i think activism should focus on with with that issue now that's not that's not not all issues are are the same so i don't know what it would be with syria i think a lot of people know about syria that it's there's a conflict there um that there's a lot of horrible things that have happened i think there's probably still a space obviously for awareness because people kind of forget or you know is that still going on or what's still happening so i I think that might be different, but I wonder if so there was the, thing, the thing that you said about institutions, uh-huh. um, you can reach out to your representatives. You mm-hmm. can reach out to people in power and you can say, Hey, listen, now that you're aware of what's going on, mm-hmm. you can say, Hey, listen, what is my representative doing on the foreign affair issue? That is blank. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, right now, what we're working on is this bill. So you can reach out to your congressman, to your congresswoman and tell them, hey, I want you to support this bill that's going to stop nations from normalizing with a dictator regime that has been killing their people. Mm -hmm. There are advocacy um, tools that you can use, especially in the U.S. When it comes to the U.S., it's the U.S. is so powerful when we have this pressure by normal everyday civilians put on their congressmen, on their representatives to, um, to, you know, pay attention to more foreign affairs issues, to more um, when it comes to what I'm talking about, to Syria. I think that's very, very important. You can do that. You can. um, And I recently just posted a video about how you can do it. It's literally, it takes like not even 10 minutes. You can go through, um, you can find your congressman through your zip code and then send them an email of the one pager that is included of what the bill is going to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can do that by reaching out to people um, that are going to, that's their field and what they do. They can have a a hand in in what's going on. Um, So that's advocacy wise. And then when it comes to, you know, if you're a lawyer, you can pick up a a case that's against uh, um, the um, Assad regime you know, force that is right now has seeked refuge elsewhere around the world. And there's so many of these, mm-hmm. by the way, that them themselves, they were the ones that were torturing and they were the ones that were killing mm-hmm. and now are in Europe and in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So we are opening up legal cases against these people for what they have done because we have proof on what they have done. So we're opening up legal cases where um, we are, you know, holding these people accountable for what they're doing. 
Um, so if you're, you're in the law legal field, you can do that. If you're in the, um, you know, automation field, you can come up with, you know, drones that can help people detect, um, if there's bodies under the rubble, mm. you can, if you're a graphic designer, as I said, you can work with, you know, awareness, uh, social media. You can, if you're a public speaker, you can, you know, learn about what's going on and, and post a video every now and then, you know, you can talk about this, you can talk about that. Um, so it's very, very, very easy to figure out what to do. You just have to know what it is. So awareness is first step. And then from that awareness, you need to do something about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. um, and it's not as difficult as you think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the one final point on that is what, what do you feel kind of what I started with what, or, or in the beginning, what do you feel encouraged by with, uh, Gen Z's and your, your, your cohorts of young people? Um, what would you, I'm going to admittedly, uh, probably imagine that many Gen Z's don't, don't listen to this. I know, I know you guys have other things of getting information podcasts aren't, aren't, aren't usually young people's way of information, but what, what do you want to say to, to, to young people that are your age group, your cohort, you know, or, 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 or even just a little bit above that about, you know, the ways they can stay, you know, active and inspired to, to do those things, whether it's for Syria, of course, but, uh, for, for, for other issues they may care about. Yeah. I think, as I said earlier, a little bit, um, we are very, very privileged to have the tools and the resources that we have. Um, you can do a full research on, on the, the most randomest thing that you can think of. Um, so using our privilege and our resources the right way is very, very important because um, not everyone around the world has the same privileges, the same education, the same um, level of economic comfortability, level of, um, you know, um, accept, acceptance as, as we as, uh, in the West, as young people in the West have. So we have that privilege that... Um, not everyone has. And I think that it's very important for us to do something and to act with this privilege, uh, no matter what it is, um, even if it's small, even if it's, you know, not every day, even if it's not all the time, hmm. do it. Uh, or, or finding um, or supporting a cause through your passion, uh, no matter what it is and what you do, is 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 very very important um but yeah i mean i mean we're young and we have a whole life ahead of us um so if, find that passion first if you haven't found that yet um it's very very important to have to be passionate about what you're doing um and to have to to love to enjoy what you're doing because you're gonna mm -hmm. do it for the rest of your life um, and, and I've talked to a lot of older people that were like, I, I'm so sorry to myself that I wasn't enjoying all those years of, of work because I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. Mm. And they like, they're, they're jealous of me to a certain extent because I have a passion because I'm working in what I'm passionate about. And I think that makes me, you know, happy and, and very content with myself because I have a passion and I figured it out at a young age. 
but not everyone has that. So I think that keep trying and getting yourself out of your comfort zone to find that passion and to see what you can do with that passion for people that are not as privileged as you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Celine, you've been very generous with your time. You've, you've given me three hours, which, which feels uh, short in a lot of ways. Uh, you're, you're very lovely to talk to and very easy to talk to. So I, I appreciate all of your, your time and energy. Uh, where is the best places to find yourself, whether it's online or anywhere else? Any um, organizations or any places that you want to promote? Just uh, where's all the, the right places to, uh, to, to find you and all the, all the stuff that you're supporting? So um, me personally, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and that's C-E-L-I-N-E-K-A-S-E-M, Celine Kassem. Um, and I post about a lot of what's going on in Syria and, you know, keeping that voice alive. And I do it in English because I know that a Western um, audience is very important because, as I said, a Western audience is way more privileged um, and has the ability to do something than another audience would. Um, so that's kind of socials. And then the organization that I work at that is focused on policy advocacy and accountability for the Syrian people and the Syrian crisis for a just and free Syria. It's called the Syrian Emergency Task Force. We are based in Washington, D.C., and we work on everything Syria-related. We also work on a lot of humanitarian um, projects as well. So you can find us at setf.ngo and Syrian ETF on Instagram and Twitter. Um, And you can keep up with our humanitarian projects. You can donate to our humanitarian projects if you wanted to. You can send a letter of hope, which is one of the most beautiful projects that we do. You write a letter and you send it to a Syrian kid in Syria. And it's just a colorful letter that we then, while while we're there, we translate it to them and we read it to them. And it makes their day. It's so beautiful. And it's literally just like a page that's a colorful um. We people do this in schools usually with their students, um, and it brightens up these kids' days. Um, and I've seen it with my own eyes; it's beautiful. You can send a letter of hope. You can, you know, um, support these humanitarian projects and 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 all of that. Mm. So that's pretty much all. Mm. Well, like, like I said, uh, you are you are absolutely, uh, I think, a big inspiration for a lot of people, myself included. Uh, you're doing great work. You have uh, such a such a good way of having passion and, and using it uh, very, very well and effectively. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking your time and energy to talk to me about things that you're doing, both personally and professionally. Um, I think we definitely need more people like yourself. So, so thanks for being uh, such a light out there for so many people. And, and uh, you're, you're quite wonderful. So, so big, big, big thanks. Thank you so, so, so much for having me on. This was this was super, super fun, and I'm glad we got to talk about all these topics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.